This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. Of the Law & Order franchises, SVU is considered especially watchable. We are the amateur detectives who kind of investigate the vicious felonies these episodes are based on. These are our stories. Dun-dun! Hi, hi, hi. Welcome to That's Messed Up, an SVU podcast. I'm Kara Clank. And I'm Lisa Traeger. This is a podcast where we talk SVU, true crime, and talk to celebrities. So thrilling. And up top, <laughs> we catch up. We catch up. Yes. Uh, we're, we as always, up. we're in the time machine. So we will be just returning from a glorious whirlwind tour of the Northeast. Thank you to everybody who came out. We loved seeing all of you. Well, so... A few weeks ago, I was talking about two different things that I thought was one thing. Yeah. So I was talking about a crime in Japan, and I said that the documentary The Serpent was about it. The Serpent's about something else. Oh, okay. It's about okay. a man um, killing tourists. So, oh, shit. So it's something different, and I don't know why my brain put them together into one one thing. So I just wanted to shout it's it out. It's murder any which way you slice it. I'm sure that's what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, I want to hear from you because you went to go see uh, the movie that's sweeping the nation, M. Thregan. Yes. Uh, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I thought it was going to be, I told you this, but I thought it was going to be, like, I thought it was a rated R Chucky, like, there would be, like, a little doll spilling blood everywhere. But I think it was just more like a campy, fun horror movie because it's PG-13. Yeah, but Chucky also is not scary. Like, it is when you're a kid and he fucking murders people with, like, blood and knives. Like, it's R-rated. There's blood and knives. Well, a machete in this one. Oh, really? Is there a lot yeah. of blood? There's an okay amount of blood. I mean, whatever okay amount. <laughs> whatever amount of blood's allowed for a PG-13. But it's yeah. not bloodless. You know what I mean? Right. There's ripped off body parts. I saw and I saw a marketing thing they did on Instagram where they just had like 15 girls dressed as Megan dancing on the deck of the Empire State Building and doing her weird like like googly oh dance God. that she does. Well, you know what I learned? Megan is girls. It was it was an actress. They filmed that with real girls wearing masks. Yeah. They're real wow. dances. So yesterday, um, a few friends were showing me just like the making of, and it's, uh, it, they're real girls. That's why it's like <laughs> so fucking cool. Um, uh, on top of it, it's like not CGI. I just love that it, they didn't take themselves too seriously. It's silly. It's funny. Everyone is so pretentious. Like, I feel, you know, they're like, Babylon. We don't care. We don't care. We don't need Babylon. I didn't even know Babylon was a thing until I got to the movies and saw posters. But that's supposed to be... <laughs> The big thing, no one cares. We want little robots. That's well, what we want. Well, it bombed at the box office, but it might do well yes. if it gets nominated for stuff. It's three hours long. You know what? I think everyone, 
I'm just going to say it, is everyone is a little bit tired about movies about the magic of Hollywood. Like, the Fablemans. Is that what it Babylon. is? Yeah, and it's always the ones that win. The ones that win are always like jerk-off, circle-jerk picks about the magic of cinema. And it's like, okay, we all like movies, whatever. I don't know. That's the problem. Give, give M3 again the fucking Oscar and then we'll talk. Yeah, and I just love Allison Williams finding this like horror, no emotion niche for herself in her life. Like, I'm just really proud yeah. of her. She Have really, I said on the podcast for, before that course. I used to babysit for her? Yes, but you could <laughs> say it again. It's huge. Okay. <laughs> no, I haven't seen her in years, but my friends at MTV interviewed her on a red carpet for like Get Out or something. And they were like, oh, we work with, with your old babysitter, Carrick Like. And she goes, she was there when it all started because <laughs> I used to do, I used to do um, Disney sing-along songs with her. We used to like sing and like dance around to Disney. But then I let them watch Ren and Stimpy one time and told her not to tell her mom because her mom had told me no Nickelodeon. And um, she told. Yeah, you can't <laughs> trust kids. And she's like, you know, I can't, you know, I'm going to tell my parents, right, babe? Like from Get Out. <laughs> No, I loved those Disney sing-alongs because, like, the little Mickey Mouse would bounce yeah, on the words. The I loved those. Totally. Those we would do it in class. I just like her and her Nepo baby, like, comment was perfect. Like, she's What just, did she say? She just goes, yeah, it's not that big of a deal. You could just admit it and um, know that you had a right. leg up, but still, you know, do good work and nothing matters. And eventually, people won't care. Yeah. Like the most yeah. basic great thing. Cause Jamie Lee Curtis had a quote like that too. And then she came out with a wild one. Like they, like she was like, we deserve the right to exist. And it's like, <laughs> okay. Like they're just, right. too, their worlds are too small. I just feel like <laughs> Kate Moss's sister being like, it had nothing to do with me being Kate Moss's sister. It's like, are you out of your mind? Like, <laughs> I just, I don't, Brooke Smith, our former guest, the woman in the well from Silence of the Lambs, one of the best Snapo babies able to talk about it, admits it, doesn't care. Like, yeah. what's so bad? What's so bad? I don't get it. Your mom's Uma Thurman. Just say it helped getting a Quentin Tarantino audition. Yes. <laughs> like, I, she's like, my mom being Uma Thurman had nothing to do with me being cast in that movie. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? Yeah. She's yeah. his muse. I don't know, but... <laughs> right. <laughs> Allison Williams is amazing. Um, and Brian Jordan Alvarez is in Megan. Me th uh -huh. M. Thregan. I can't even say it like <laughs> you. And Ronnie Chang. So that was, like, fun, too, to see some familiar yeah. faces. Yeah. I don't know. I loved it. I loved. I don't know Brian Jordan Alvarez personally. Does he do stand-up? No, I think we might be just internet friends. But, yeah, and, he, and I um, think he's like a sketchy character guy, right? Yeah, Not sketchy, I, sketch comedy. <laughs> yeah, he does like front-facing really funny characters. Like, I um, should follow him. Like I'm gonna Southern follow him. waitress on your first day of work. And it's her like training you, but she's like, you're not supposed to do this, but... And, like, I, I always know. do. <laughs> yeah. Um, one Love of the it. best undercover bosses is Retro Fitness. Have you ever seen that? No. There's like a woman, uh, Jack, Jacqueline, <laughs> and she is so disrespectful. She legit like tells client, like customers at the gym, like, go fuck yourself. And like <laughs> the boss, like the owner's trying to, and she goes, I don't give a shit. I just told you what to do. Just do it. And then she obviously gets fired in the end. She's wearing a diamond cross, just swearing at the TV, like so pissed. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> Go find Undercover Boss with our Queen Jacqueline Retro Fitness. So good. Yeah. <laughs> well, also, yeah. Did you watch Golden Globes at all? I checked out the winners. I looked at a couple speeches. I saw Jennifer Coolidge's like hilarious, like very touching speech to Mike White. And 
Then I just this morning saw a, a red carpet with her where they were like, are there any um, part, roles that you want to play next? And she goes, I've always wanted to play a dolphin. It's so funny. What are you talking about? She's so funny. And I love when Mike White won. He went, well, you all passed on this. So this makes it even better. And he was oh. like, and to the actors, he goes, you all passed and don't... Don't pretend you didn't. You all passed. And it makes this moment even sweeter. Something like that. I only, yeah. I didn't watch it. I just, um, you know, I don't have Twitter anymore, but I'll go look at the trending topics sometimes. Is it super early? I feel like award season doesn't usually get going until like Feb and it's like January, uh, like 10th. No, Golden Globes always January. Golden oh, Globes okay. are always January. Super Bowl is February. I did also <laughs> like that Ryan Murphy let MJ Rodriguez take a moment as the first trans actress to ever win. Last year, she won in the non-televised. And so he like let her get up and like, you know, take a bow. And that was really Aww. sweet. Yeah. And so I saw a couple clips, but I, I didn't watch the show, which is weird. I'm a, I'm an award show person. I think I've just, they've started to really bore me these like days. Well, I think once you see how the sausage is made, it's like not as cool yeah. either. Like I grew up with my family. Award shows were everything. Yeah. We, my dad, I mean, my my dad would let us get pizza <laughs> and we would watch and then we'd get the magazines of all the best dress during the week. Like right. we loved it, but now you know it's like a PR circuit. Like it's just, the Golden yeah. Globe started because the press, um, the celebrities weren't talking to the press. Did you tell me this? I just no, you told this. me this. You told on me. On the pod or no? No, um, I don't so think so. The Golden Globes is just like the foreign press and no one talked to the press. And they're like, well, no, no, no one loves awards more than celebrities. So they created this award show just to get interview exclusives with celebrities. Yes. So it's like all kind of based on stuff. But what I really want to talk about, someone who didn't watch the whole thing, just Twitter, internet, some BuzzFeed clips, Gerard Carmichael. It's like, you haven't seen anything about it? Just the Shelly thing. He, I don't get it. Like, I don't get why he did it. It wasn't funny. And it was basically like, I just hate people that are like, well, I didn't even try. So it doesn't even matter. I just hate cynicism. I hate people that don't try. And it's like, you can make points and be funny. Like, it, it was Ricky Gervais's scathingness with not a joke in sight. But 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 the mention of Shelly Miscavige, did that bother you? Because I thought that was kind of like, oh, damn, at least somebody's talking about it. Oh, it didn't bother me. It was just towards the end and it was right before like um, Tom Cruise people came. I'm just saying people were like talking, like people weren't listening to him. He had to spend most yeah. of the time going, why do I have to keep telling you guys to shut up? Shut up. Stop talking because people stopped listening to him because he was just not caring at all, like playing it like anti-comedy. Well, well, it was anti-comedy and he wanted to make points of like, this is racist as fuck. I hate this. I hate all of this. Hollywood is bullshit. I don't give a shit about any of you. Like, uh. very... And so people were just talking and the Shelly part, everyone just went... <gasps> like, Oh, I know. Eh, I loved that, but it just... I don't get him. I don't get it. I never have gotten it. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. When I meet him, he's nice, but like, oh, I he's just, so lovely to me. I just and the first don't time I it. met him, he's like, when you come to LA, I'll help you get on shows. And then he did. He like emailed people for me to get on shows. Like, he's always been so nice, but yeah, I, I haven't talked to him in a while. And I don't, I haven't seen a lot of the new stuff, like the specials and the whatever. I just feel like I, th like, Obviously, awards are stupid, but they mean a lot to people. Like, yeah. a lot of people work decades. Like, Mike White's in tears. Like, things mean a lot to people. Like, it takes a lot of work 
to be able to be there. And like, and nobody wants you to be too cool at anything. Like, yes, don't be at, too don't cool. Even, that's it. Yeah. Don't be at a, don't be like speaking at an insurance conference and be like, I'm too cool to be here. Like, then don't be speaking. Like, I mean, don't be too cool. And then I went on Twitter for anyone to be like, he was, you guys, you know, and all the people that did like him were like, the jokes are supposed to be not funny. You just don't get it. And it's like, <laughs> I actually do get it. And anti, I don't like anti-comedy. People, right. Andy Kaufman, I've never seen a piece of it. I don't give a shit. Like, it's yeah. not for me. Um, but I don't know. I'm going to watch the full, I'm going to watch more and more just to like make sure. Yeah, you're making me want to watch it now. Now yeah, I, I want to check it out. We should watch it together because I want to see if I still think what I'm thinking while seeing all of it. But it was just like, that's why I hated the Kathy Hilton putting lip gloss on. I don't like anyone taking away from people like doing things that right. really do matter. And I don't, I think it's cool to care. And yeah. that's that. But he got paid a half a million and I can't believe they let him do it. Like I really... Did he have writers, I wonder? Like, did, I'm sure. Did they know what right? he was doing? Like, Maybe not because I heard that he likes to rewrite a lot of things. Like, I think he likes to have his own hand on the steering wheel. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't... He maybe had writers, but I think he had final say on everything that he said. For sure. Judging from what I've known about... What I've heard about him. I just feel like you can be a badass and say all the fucked up shit and still be funny. Like, the, I just don't get why you want to not be funny. But he yeah. also, his first comedy special, he had he brought notes up and doesn't care. He doesn't care. And it's just like so rewarded in every way. And I don't, I don't yeah. know. It's just something I don't understand at all. Well, it's kind of like, I have a friend in comedy who like, he books a million commercials. He books so many commercials. And he goes into the attitude at every commercial, like, I don't give a fuck if I get this. And he gets it all the time. It's like, it is rewarded in this business. Like, they'll be like, will you shave? And he'll be like, nope. And he'll get it. You know what I mean? Like, they'll, they'll just be like, you know, other people are going into commercial auditions being like, hey, babe, how are your kids? Oh my God, it's so great to see you. Okay, do you want me to over here? Like, and he just goes in and is like, when is this fucking over? Are we done yet? Like, and gets it, books it every time. So yeah. it's wild, you know? It is wild. I don't know. I'm curious how everyone felt about it or if he had fun at the parties. Like, I wonder if he had fun. It's just <laughs> like, I. it's just um, confusing to me. But if he really pulled one on them, I guess that's a cool prank, getting paid a lot. And then the Golden Globes <laughs> tweeted like, that was amazing. Thank you for your incredible work. And then all the comments are like, what? <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? I love how you're just signing into like memberless Twitter. I don't sign Twitter. in. Yeah, you're just sh like logging on to no sign in Twitter, just checking out the free public Twitter feed. Yeah, I just do it for like White Lotus. I did it. I loved yeah. seeing yeah. all the White Lotus it stuff. It is and the so only this, place where it. people are having conversations about stuff still, unfortunately. Well, because I didn't even know the Golden Globes were happening. I was on the phone with our friend and I, I like saw something. I go, wait. The Golden Globes today? It in wasn't until I saw like people that we both follow, like Meg Stalter. So I saw her on the red carpet and was like, oh, that's today. Like I truly didn't know. Well, I thought it was because of Twitter, but I guess not. I thought it was because I don't have Twitter. I'm out of the loop, but you're you have it and you're out of the oh, loop. Oh no, I I was totally out. I was totally out. Well, you know, I go on my own Twitter for like a little bit sometimes in the morning, and then I go on the that's messed up Twitter, which is all just like releasey fanfic and like random shit, you know? <laughs> Um, 
No, I also didn't know it's on a Monday. Like that felt weird or Tuesday. Whenever it was, I thought it was a Sunday yeah. thing. I thought award it, shows yeah. were a Sunday. I like, feel like I was, it usually is. You're right. I was confused um, about that. I don't know. We'll I see. have an episode of my podcast that, you know, I've been telling you about nonstop called The Town, which is a, like an industry podcast about Hollywood, which I think non-industry and industry people both listen to. But um, there is an episode waiting on my phone that's like, why are we losing award shows? Like, why are people just so totally dropping award shows? So I'm interested to listen to what he... Ooh, um, I'll do theories. And then once you listen, you can like yeah. tell me the truth. Um, well, I think the internet ruined everything. Thing. Yeah. Because yeah. you could just see the best speeches. You could see who won. You don't have to watch. There's no surprise. There's no excitement. Also, people aren't going to the movies. We also are all watching such different things. Exactly. Everything's like very cheering. fractured. Yeah. yeah. Except yeah. White Lotus. I think that really captured <laughs> the nation. But, and I love that Jeremy Allen White one. I didn't watch The Bear yet, but I do like him. Yeah, and I and I really loved Everything Everywhere All at Once. So I'm happy Michelle Yeoh is getting like all the props that she's getting for that movie. I feel like she's going to win the Oscar too. Well, the guy won too. Oh yeah, he did too. Yeah, yeah, I saw. And I, I guess he, I, I Googled him. I guess he was like, he acted in the 80s as a kid. Yeah, he's from Goonies or no, yeah, it's another it's big 80s. It's Goonies, it's yeah. It's Goonies and um, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones. Yeah, and then he like dropped off forever and he's so good. Have you seen it? Not yet because I yeah. didn't see it in the movies and it's on Delta flights, but usually Delta's for fun. Like, I don't know, when I'm in the <laughs> air, I don't want to watch this incredible film. You know yeah. what I mean? And you, and it's not the kind of movie where you want to like doze off for a few minutes exactly. and then pick it back up. Like, yeah, you got to really focus on it. So I have a flight where I'm in first class lay down and it's at, in the afternoon. I'm flying from like 1 to 9 p.m. Like, it's chill. So maybe that's where I'll finally watch it with like my meal. Oh, yeah. That'll be chill. That'll be nice. You like cozy up and watch a movie. I am... Number five on the list for an upgrade tomorrow, and there are nine seats for tonight, and I'm excited. Okay, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if it's gonna happen, but I was like looking this morning, I was like, ooh la la. Um, okay, let's get started with our yeah. episode today. Um, we don't really have a ton of tour dates coming up because we just wrapped our big uh, fall winter tour, but we will be in Vancouver at the JFL Vancouver. Uh, Festival, which is awesome. We'll be there on February 20th. So get tickets for that. Those are available at that'smessuplive.com. And I believe we'll be announcing a few more dates soon. Yeah. And watch the Instagram. Yeah, I'll do like um, a YouTube thing. S um, subscribe. No, don't subscribe to any. No, Smash yeah, that subscribe, subscribe button. Yeah. <laughs> no, but give us some um, give us some nice reviews and some stars if it if it feels good. The Taylor yeah. Swift camp fans really made did a dent. <laughs> They made a we dent were... and it bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what somebody told me? Somebody told me that like, it's just the number of reviews that you get. Like, even if they're bad, it's still the good you that. number of reviews. <laughs> no, I feel like it was Hannah or somebody. So they were like, even yeah, your engagement. bad reviews are good. Yeah. So engagement. it's like, fuck you. All the people that give us one-star reviews. <laughs> Joke's on you. Um, all right, let's get started. So we are doing Abomination Season 5, Episode 8, taking it back to 2003. And we open on a lady in a crossing guard vest 
and she's corralling a bunch of children across the street and she's like talking to them in kid talk. She's like, let's stop, look, and listen when we cross the street, whatever. But then as the kids go but under her is, breath. Um, as much of a trope as like jogging through the park. I feel like there's been a crossing guard with young children in like 10 episodes. Yeah. There it have it been is a, a thing. Few. It's always like, we're going to be safe. And then it's like a dead body or a van <laughs> snatches a child. Like this does happen. Yeah. Maybe we could be crossing guards. Maybe that's where we're going off begging for casting. Maybe we would make great crossing guards that are kind of fighting. Wow. This is my corner. You know, this is the street I walk the kids on. And then yeah. you're like, I've been here for 10 years. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That could be us. Yeah. Um, but this lady's like all nice with the kids. And then under her breath goes, I hope a cab doesn't splatter you all over Midtown, you little brats. And it's so funny <laughs> to me. She hates her job. And she sees something. And I can't tell if she like works for the school and does a crossing guard, just wearing a crossing guard vest. But anyway, she sees something and suddenly we see her eyes widen, her whole face changes and she yells to her coworker, get the kids inside. We pan around to what she's seeing and it's like an arm poking out from under a blanket and it's very likely attached to a dead ass body. And finally, there's a little bit of excitement in this bitter crossing guards day. So I'm happy for her. And then Benson and Stabler are on the scene with a uni breaking it down and the guy the guy's like white male 20s naked wrapped in queen size sheets the condoms in there with him and fluids on the body so of course they called the sex police his neck is broken his scalp is torn up and there's like a white powder in it and there's blue stuff on the sheets like a melted plastic like melted nylon and um a building super found a pillowcase in the bushes that matches the sheets. I don't know really where that ends up. But inside are the guy's clothes, no wallet. So a piece of paper is the only thing on him with anything identifying on it. And it says 7th and Bleecker, Thursday, 7 p.m. The uniform guy is like, well, she must have shown him a real good time before she killed him. And Stabler's like, dude, number one lesson at SVU school, an erection is a side effect of asphyxiation. And the cop goes, oh, because I was going to say he was scared stiff. And Stabler winces at the middle school joke. And then we dive into the credits. So I guess this dead body had a boner. Um, anyway, so top of act one, Stabler's complaining about how many doors they'll have to potentially knock on because, you know, the corner of 7th and Bleecker is popping. And Finn comments, also, if the guy was killed there in the village, that's a hundred blocks from where the body was found. It's a long way to lug a body. Uh, one of them must live near the dump site or she had help moving the body. And I love this like heteronormative narrative. Like they find a naked man with a condom on and they're like, a woman killed him. A woman killed him in the middle of sex. Like could not have been a man. Being gay does not exist in 20 2003 or anything. So there's no hit on the prince from this guy. And then enter our CSU queen, Judy Cyper. And she goes, this was challenging. And you know, it must've been a challenge if it was challenging for her because she's figured out a lot of shit before. And she goes, so, um, I found gypsum particles in his hair and flakes of flat latex paint in eggshell white. So it looks like his head was bashed against a wall. That's what the white stuff was. Um, and the bed sheets are more interesting, she says. They put that blue substance under infrared spectrometer. It's nylon, like what sports apparel is made out of. And it was melted onto the sheets. And they're like, maybe from a faulty dryer. And Finn's like, oh, well, I've fucked up a lot of laundry and have eggshell white walls. So maybe this is my building. And they're like, and Jude's is like, yeah, but I don't think you killed this guy. And they found two blood types in the semen that were in the sheets. So your victim spent his last night with another man. A I wrote scandal. It's 2003. So Cragen's like, go out and check the gay bars. And... um. 
they're at, now they're at a gay bar and uh, like probably near Seventh and Bleecker, and Hugo is there. Oh no, I'm sorry, it's called Hugo's. <laughs> I love to call this guy Hugo. He's just like a hottie unloading beers. He said he worked till 4 a.m., but after 10, he doesn't really remember much. One of the perks of working at a gay bar is that you never have to buy your own drinks. That's what he says. So he calls over the bouncer. And the bouncer's got like a thick New York accent. He's like, never seen him here, but I know that face. And he's like, he's a model or something. Like the posters that they plaster on construction sites. So now Benson and Stabler just go out to a nearby construction site and start ripping posters off the wall trying to find this guy. And they do find a poster, of course, because it's television that says... Uh, it's him and a woman standing together and underneath it says, we chose the path to love. There's a cross. This is very gaudy. And then... Um, not gaudy, like over-the-top God, uh, like a lot of God. And um, Liv goes, looking pretty heterosexual. And it's an advertisement for a place called Regenesis. So now we cut to Huang, George Huang, with the lowdown. And he's like, Regenesis is a Christian ministry service advocating freedom from homosexuality through prayer and counseling. It started in the 80s as the so-called ex-gay movement. And it was started by two ex-gays called Derek and Kelly Singer. And they don't condemn homosexuality outright. Like, they're not into gay bashing. They they just think it's a sin and that everyone has to resist the sin. So I just, um, I mean, I mean, this is a question, the tale as old as time. It's not anything original, but like, why won't these people mind their business? Why can't yeah. they mind their business? Yeah. I just don't get it. Well, I definitely think when people are gay bashing, I think what these people think they're doing is helping people get over like a gambling addiction. Like it's the same thing as gambling or drinking too much. Like, listen, you just have to avoid like this. That's that's what I get the idea that Regenesis is trying to do. So BD Wong says it's controversial and fucking Stabler is like, okay, so if someone thinks being gay is a sin, not saying I do, what's wrong with wanting to change? And BD Wong's like, it's the assumption that you can change. Like they claim they've converted people back to straight with no proof and surprise, surprise, doctors, AKA science say it's bullshit. So let's find out who this poster boy for the ex-gay movement pissed off. So now we're at the Regenesis headquarters and the founders, uh, Derek and Kelly Singer, are sitting there and they tell him that this guy's name is James Reed. They saw him uh, over six months ago was the last time and they were trying to reach out to him but not getting an answer. He thought they were judging him but they weren't. And they're like, you weren't? You didn't think it was bad he was gay? And Derek is like, you think we're religious fanatics and God turned us straight? It's a struggle. We fight it every day. And it's like, why would you want to live like that? I really don't get it, but... It was James's idea to be on the poster initially. He wanted people to like to know that homosexuality doesn't have to control you. But he had doubts. And Benson said, yeah, like he had a boyfriend. That doesn't look good for you guys. And they're like, you think we killed James? Like, And they're like, well, maybe you felt betrayed. This makes your whole organization kind of look like a sham. Like your poster boy did not get actually successfully converted. And they're like, I wouldn't care if he had 100 boyfriends if it made him happy. I knew it didn't. And they're like, okay, well... What's the address? So at his apartment, we're now at James Reed's apartment and there's no blood on the bed, but there's a syllabus for a clinical psych class at Hudson University and it looks like he's going for his master's. They find pics of him on vacation with a guy named Phil and um, Liv is talking shit about the gay conversion idiots convincing themselves they're happy and Stabler's like, maybe they are. And she's like, okay, so suppressing your sexual desires makes a gay person a good Christian? Like, that's fucked. And here's Stabler with his very regressive sexuality as a choice argument, and our queen has to put him in his place. So they find some hate mail, tw 20 to 30 letters that are addressed from Nebraska. And they're like, let's go talk to this boyfriend, Phil. They find this old-ass flip phone with a number in it for Phil. 
So now we're talking to Phil, who is a doctor, and Stabler does call him Dr. Phil, and it's very funny to me. And um, they're like, you didn't report your boyfriend missing? And he's like, my ex-boyfriend. We broke up three months ago. He has no family, so I'm paying for the funeral. And they're like, why did you break up? And he's like, we weren't the loves of each other's lives, but I think we got what we needed from each other. We met at Regenesis, and then we realized how dumb it was, and we left. And Dr. Phil says, I used to think being straight would be easier, but now I just can't imagine being anyone other than who I am. And he said, that's the one good thing about Regenesis is like, I met James and was able to leave and realize how dumb it was and live my truth. And so he says Regenesis people are basically good people. They just believe in God's roadmap. Do you know? So they ask him, do you know who wrote all this hate mail? And he goes, well, he wrote a bunch of articles bashing Regenesis, so he made himself a target. So really it could be any of the people that are homophobic in this world. And he said also that James was seeing somebody, but he was deep in the closet and that they figure maybe this person will come out to attend the funeral. So now we're at the funeral and there's a full protest going on with members of the Church of Eternal Providence in Nebraska. They're picketing and chanting. They're yelling, God hates you and all this horrible, vile shit. And one of the protesters is this like truly decrepit man with the yellowest nasty teeth who I, I am hoping and praying that they didn't just cast this man like this and that they added some yellow to his teeth because it's a problem. And who knows, He, this guy, you know, he knows all of God's exact thoughts and feelings and he wants to let these people know that they are, you know, abominations and uh, is yelling slurs at them. And Phil starts like a fight. Phil arrives at the funeral and is like, get out of here. And he's doing the, like he's pushing with the gross teeth man. And in all the shoving, gross teeth man crosses the line of what is considered legal protest area where they've been permitted. So now he gets arrested. So now top of act two, we're talking to, you know, Mr. Bigot McYellowteeth, Reverend Mitchell Shaw is his name. And he's doing the Lord's work, blah, blah, blah. He quotes the Bible about homosexuality as a sin and worthy of death. And now we get Stabler coming in at least to put be put to good use with his Catholic school education. And he's like, like the Bible also tells me I can sell my daughters into slavery and I should be put to death if I work on Sundays, buddy. Like, what are you talking about? And this man was like, 9-11 happened because there's so many gay people in New York. Like, it's fucking out of control. And Stabler is pissed. He calls him a bigot hiding his bullshit behind the Lord. And then we have a lot of Olivia saying the F word and quoting his letters to James. And he admits to writing them, but he says, you can't prosecute me for writing letters. And he wishes he had killed Reed, but he was a thousand miles away. Now the squad is all making fun of this gross old man, but Cragen says the police back in Nebraska do confirm it is his alibi. Like he was picketing a totally other innocent person's funeral probably in another state. So Novak says, cut him loose. And Benson's like, yeah, but one of his followers of his congregation like totally could have, you know, decided to take it a step further. And Novak's like, yeah, prove it. Maybe I can get him on the fighting words doctrine. But then, as as we so often wonder with the show, what about the semen? Uh, <laughs> these people, like, because these people wouldn't have had sex with him. They would have just killed him. So like, is what we still need to find out this mystery boyfriend, like what's going on? And... um, a lot of people left before they could talk to them because of the fight that broke out. So that scared some people off. But so Munch found a camera that one of the church members must have left behind. And he's like, oops, they must have left it behind, wink, wink. And Novak is like, I didn't hear that. And he's like, I'm just going to develop their film for free and then get it back to them. And Cragen is like, go show those pictures around to like all the people you talked to at the funeral and see if we can like make some IDs. So now we're at Hudson University and a professor is like, like I told you, I don't really know James's friends. I just know his research. He was working on a long-term study on reparative therapy and the theory that same-sex attraction is arrested development 
and can be cured. And he, they're like, well, most shrinks think that's crap. And he's like, yes, I agree. It's experimental and it's unproven at best. And at worst, patients develop anxiety, depression, increased risk of suicide, um, having been subjected to reparative therapy. And so his research was proving that reparative therapists know their treatment doesn't work, but prey on vulnerable patient, patients like snake oil salesmen or like many religious people. So his whole thing was going to debunk all this re reparative therapists like work that you guys are all bullshit. And the only people who have even read his proposal are three professors. And he goes, actually, there was a fourth one, but he resigned. His name was Roger Tate, and he's a proponent of reparative therapy. And that's why we wanted to have him on the study for like, you know, all sides, I guess. And he thought there were methodological problems with the study, and that's why he, he resigned from it. So now we're talking to Roger Tate, and it is the late, great George Siegel, or Siegel, Siegel, I think. And he, I know him from Look Who's Talking, Just Shoot Me. He was also more recently in the Goldbergs, and then he did pass away in 2021. Um, and I love this man. I loved him in movies. I've seen him in forever. And he's like an act, like a, was a big actor in the 70s and 80s as well. Um, Anyway, he says, listen, I disagreed with James, but I liked him and I respected him. And we debated in symposiums. Roger believes being gay is a complex pathology and that if you identify the root of the neurosis, you can change the neurotic behavior. And his research shows that an overbearing mother combined with a distant father influences psychosexual development. Like the, the, the gay man wants a relationship with his dad and then he seeks it out with other men. And Ice-T is like, that must have pissed you off that James's research was going to torpedo your work. And his, he's like, his methods were shoddy. He was probably never going to be published. And I felt sorry for him. He treats a lot of men who try to fill their empty lives with anonymous sex and loveless relationships. And James tried to convince himself that he was normal. But how could he have been? This is so like, <laughs> such like an old episode in my mind. Um, Munch is like, uh, oh, if an overbearing mother and a distant father are what make you gay, then color me gay. And um, they pass a guy going into the office and Munch does a little tricky thing and he asks the receptionist, excuse me, was that Elliot Stabler? And he goes, no, that's Ian, Dr. Tate's son. The woman just offers this information, love it. Like, if it was a patient, she wouldn't be able to tell you who that was. Anyway, Munch recognizes the dude and goes, that guy was at the funeral. So we find out that Ian Tate is 20 years old he dropped out of school upstate after one semester and now is in community college. The mom is dead. The father pays for the apartment, which is, surprise, half a block away from the dump site. Not even so, like... So this guy is so familiar looking to me, the son. And I, I I don't know from where I know him. Like he's in one episode of Six Feet Under. I'm like, is that it? Like I'm yes. looking at all his credits and I'm like, none of these are connected to me, but this man's face, is it just from SVU? Like Lisa, when I tell you I wrote the exact same thing, I wrote, this is Jonathan Tucker. He looks familiar. I thought I'd seen him in more, but I think I only know him from Hannibal, the TV show. He was in Hannibal, which I watched. That must be where I recognize him from. He was also in Parenthood. Did yeah, you watch that? I did watch Parenthood. I just saw that he was in 10 episodes. So I'm trying to, but I don't remember Bob Little. Christina Bamert, former, oh, he was running for mayor. Okay, I yeah. do remember him. So we both know him from like one show, but I thought I'd seen him in like a lot of stuff, but I haven't. He's also in Justified and American Gods. And um, yeah, that's well, this guy. he's in um, Echoes with Daniel Sunjata. Oh, excuse me. We need to watch that. Um, I know. It really came and went. Like you would think a Netflix show would be more in the know. Do you think it was in other people's you should watch and it's trending and it's just not in ours? Like, 
We're Daniel Sunjata fans. I know. You got to know by my Google search that I'm looking up on, I'm on Daniel Suchata's IMDb page weekly. But anyway, they find out that, yes, the father pays for an apartment so close to where the body was dumped and that there were over 50 calls between Ian, the son, and Reed, James Reed, the night, including the night of the death. So they're like, so Dr. Homophobe's son is gay and killed his boyfriend. If he was ashamed to be gay, maybe he just had to destroy James. And so a lot, um, uh, I think it's Wong saying this, that a lot of gay people suffer from internalized homophobia and from a culture that demonizes him, plus a dad who spent years promoting being gay as unacceptable. So he would have done anything to keep the illusion of being straight. So now they go talk to uh, Ian Tate and... uh, He's like, James Reed, never heard of him. And they're like, okay, liar, we have the phone records. And he's like, yeah, James was harassing me because of my dad. And he calls him the F word as well. And Stabler says, most homophobes are repressed homosexuals, which is a myth. And that's not true. But, uh, you know, that's what Stabler is throwing out at him but to try to get him to roll. I know it's like a myth, I but I do feel it's sometimes true. But why is it offensive? Like, I know people are offended by that kind of thinking. But in my head, it's like, you know, doth protest too much. Yes, the lady doth protest too much. Or yeah. in my head, it's like my whole thing is if like you're living your truth in your best life, um, why like you would understand why others like if you were in like in a loving thing, you would want that for everybody. Right. So I just assume people that are so hateful of others are jealous because they don't get to live their true life. Um, but obviously, some people are just hateful fucks. I was just wondering why it's offensive. Yeah, I know. No, people I get was mad. reading. I was reading an article about it really quickly, but then I just got stuck on something else. So I I don't I don't think I finished it cuz I wanted to know too. I would, I wanted to know if that was true. So I looked it up and it's and I found out that it was a myth, but it is, I don't but know every why Republican that bothers person people. that is against gays is always found tapping on a bathroom stall, paying yeah. sex workers. They're always caught. They're always caught with stuff on their hard yeah. drive. Like it is wild that every Christian leader and Republican um government official that hates gay people. Oh, it's like, it It, it seems like they're yeah. always found out to be doing gay stuff. So I don't know. Yeah, because it's like, is it worse? Yeah, like, because to me, there's almost something a little bit worse about not only being a bigot, but being a hypocrite. Like, you can like, if you're a bigot that's not trying to stop, but you're also a bigot that's like trying to actively stop people from living this life that you kind of wish you could li- live. That's why I'm always like grossed out by these Republican, like, you know, politicians that are toe-tapping in the bathroom. But anyway, well, that's a great question. Well, maybe it's because it, it makes it seem like everyone in the closet is hateful and a killer. And that's not yes. true. Like, I'm sure there's that's tons of people right. in the closet that, you know, aren't hateful. Yeah, it's it's complicated. But to think it's a full myth, I think, is like also not true. It happens. We've well, seen to it say, I think it's to say that most of them are repressed. I, yeah. I mean, it was is the myth. There obviously exists homophobes who are hom- who are homosexual, obviously. Yeah. Hello, but, um, has no one seen American Beauty? <laughs> That's one of my favorite movies. I, I, movie. I know Kevin Spacey has turned out to be kind of a criminal, but that movie really does it for me. That really, that movie was a big one for me back in the day. Um, but anyway, um, Liv is like, be honest with us. And he's like, I'm not gay and I didn't kill him. And Stabler is like helping some old lady out of the building. And Liv's like, okay, then why don't you just give us a DNA sample? And he's like, nope, and walks away. And they don't have cause to compel a swab. And it's like, fuck this old lady. Stabler was really grabbing the door so that he could go in and do some snooping and check a dryer that melts clothes or whatever. So now we're in the laundry room and they're just like feeling laundry machines. And Stabler finds one that's hot, hot, hot. 
And he finds a piece of melted nylon in the lint trap and says, this should get us a warrant for Ian's apartment. And it's like, how? <laughs> how could like literally a piece of nylon in a communal dryer get you a, a warrant to someone's apartment? I'm obviously, as, as always, willing to go along to get along for the sake of television, but that is not a smoking gun to get a warrant and it's kind of nuts to me. Um, at Ian's apartment, the place has been cleaned and recently painted. And Liv finds a bit of uneven wall that looks like it's been recently patched and Stabler goes, got a saw? And, the, you, and, and then he goes, bring it. Like the way he says it is so funny because Stabler just goes, bring it. Got a saw? Yeah. Bring it. And I want everyone to go back and watch it on Hulu like right now. It's made me laugh so much. I listened to it six times. And so now this man is sawing open the wall. Ian comes home with his dad, Roger, in tow and they're demanding a warrant. They slap it in his face and he's like, I'm calling a lawyer. And Stabler goes, yeah, like let's see what we see in here. And they open up this patch of wall and on the beams behind the wall, there's just straight up blood and hair sitting right there on the wall, on the beams. And it's like, wow, you got a crew to come in here for a deep clean and a spackle, but no one thought like, hey, let's wipe off this blood that's like visible to the, uh, to the untrained eye. Like, it's wild. And then Stabler goes, all that plastering for nothing. And they arrest Ian. And the dad goes, I'm getting you a lawyer. Don't say a word. Something a lot of SVU suspects do need to be told. Top of act three... And we get this court clerk who is announcing the case. And he's got a Southern accent and is very noticeable to me. And he's the one in the courtroom in the episode Design who goes, Highway Patrol just found mistruced. Remember that guy? How can I forget? Yeah. How so, can I forget anyway, a full phone phone conversation in um, the courtroom, but also a kind of a brag at our Sacramento show. We met a stenographer. Yes. And she told brag. us that stenographers are hot and cool and she doesn't like being portrayed as an old idiot with old technology. Yeah. They don't use the like doot, doot, doot thing anymore where like your hands just move along. I think they use different shit And there's now. a and shorthand and you get to create your own shorthand, we learned. And um, she was hot yeah. and she brought her daughter. So shout out yeah. to our stenographer friend. Yes, stenographer from Sacramento. Anyway, this man was funny to me and he's been in five episodes of SVU and three episodes of regular Law & Order always just as like a court clerk. And I love the idea that the show's just like bouncing back and forth. They're like, we just need a guy to like read out a court number. So he's like, docket 734, case of Ian Tate or whatever. And then holy shit, his lawyer is Daphne Zuniga. She's from Spaceballs and Melrose Place. Obviously a huge part of my childhood. I watched this woman. I've watched hours of this woman. As I um, furrow he, my brow and I'm like, who? Who? <laughs> she's princess. She's the princess in Spaceballs. She's like a huge part and just was one of the stars of Melrose Place. Like she and Grant Show had this like hot romance. And I guess she was also more recently a regular on One Tree Hill, which might hit for some of our listeners as well. So here she's playing Emma Dish um, Dishell. And yeah, she, so we don't her, get posts later going, what about One Tree Hill? Yeah. <laughs> um... She, this is her only episode of SVU. She's not like a recurring lawyer, though. I don't know why. She's um, pretty fun. And she, he, uh, Ian Tate pleads not guilty and Casey asks for remand since he's a violent homophobe and his lawyer claims he was defending himself after being sexually assaulted by James Reed. And this is the first time Casey's heard of this assault excuse at all. And she's like, 
And Emma's like, well, you're an SVU ADA and you should know that victims delay reporting all the time. And they're like, well, we found his semen at the scene. And she goes, but if a woman orgasms when she's raped, does that mean she really wanted it? And that is a good point. And I did write, if a woman owes when she's ard, and I just wanted to explain how I take notes. And uh, the judge is like, I'll hear proof of the rape later and remands him, which is shocking for like a white boy with money to get remanded you know, when he also claims that he was a victim. So now Casey is talking to the late Senator Fred Thompson, the DA, about how this assault thing is bullshit and it's an attempt at a gay panic defense, which she says rarely works. She says in the Matthew Shepard case, the judge didn't even allow the defense to present a gay panic defense. Um, but in New York, he uh, he points out, gay panic falls under extreme emotional disturbance. But Casey said, juries still don't buy it. And I looked it up and in 2018... Two Democratic senators introduced a bill that would ban the gay and trans panic defense at a national level, but it died in committee. In 2019, it was reintroduced um, at, to Congress as the Gay and Trans Panic Defense Prohibition Act of 2019. It died at the end of 2020, reintroduced in April of 2021, and it seems to still be in committee, but has a very low chance of passing, which fucking sucks because I don't think that that should be um, a legitimate defense. Anyway, the DA tells Casey, it's just one juror thinking that being gay is a sin for your murder charge to be knocked down to manslaughter. And he goes, that Texas case did a lot for gay rights, but it also incited a backlash. And what he's talking about is Lawrence versus Texas, which is in 2003, the same year this episode came out, the Supreme Court ruled that sodomy laws, which are basically any adult non-procreative sexual activity, are unconstitutional. And it's just wild that there's a, a group of people that are like, that's not right. It's like, mind your fucking business. Yeah. These fucking losers. I just. Yeah. <sighs> and so, yeah. So he's like, basically the ADA says, you got to you gotta prove this guy is gay so that the gay panic defense goes bye-bye. And the tricky part is not playing the politics of it. They want to make this about straight versus gay. You need to make it about murder. So now we're at a diner and the gang is chatting over food. And it looks, I literally fast rewound it six times. It looks like Liv is eating a pile of tuna on a bed of lettuce. Stabler had a burger but left one half of the bun behind and then some fries. And then Casey had some kind of sandwich, maybe a turkey club. And they do have onion rings for the table in between all of them. But maybe they were bad because they look untouched. Benson is poking at her food and is reporting that Ian is a loser with no friends and that he only really talked to his dads. He has no subscriptions to gay magazines, no receipts from gay bars, like nothing that indicates that he was gay. Or I'm sorry, is gay. This is, um, we're talking about Ian. And uh, Liv says she wouldn't be surprised if James was his only boyfriend he's ever had. Munch shows up with some bad news. There is an assault report from the night of the murder from Ian Tate at the hospital. But why didn't the lawyer present that to get him bail? That's what I would like to know. Like, Your Honor, we have a hospital report. You know, I don't know why. Now we're talking to the ER nurse who, who confirms that this guy checked in at 11.05. He had a, I think she said a 14 cm laceration on his right arm. 14 centimeters seems like a really big laceration. Bruises on his torso and he said he got mugged. Um, Benson points out that the cops weren't called till the morning. And she's like, welcome to Thursday night at the Knife and Gun Club. We were busy, bitch. And she said she would have asked about a sexual assault if she had seen any signs of it, but she didn't. And so, like, and there's also, she confirmed that there's no way this man could have left and come back. If you leave, you lose your spot. So now Benson and Stable are talking about the timeline. And they're like, 
when would he have had time to jump the body with this hospital visit where he probably had to wait hours and like, you know, it was not there at 11 o'clock, but it was there at like 8 a.m. So like, when would he have time to move the body? And it had to have been his father. No one else uh, in his life is a dump a body for you kind of friend. So we got to place daddy uh, at the scene. So now... We're talking to a friend of the pod, eternal hottie, Daniel Sunjata, who we were just talking about, a.k.a. Bert Trevor. And he's like, yep, you guys were right. And we're looking at the patch of wall that he removed, that they removed from Ian's house. And he shows them how the second type of blood, when you push someone's head through the wall and your hand goes through, you're going to like scrape your hand at the top when you're pulling your hand out. So at the top of the hole, they find a second type of blood and that would be the killer's blood type. It's not Ian Tate's type, but it is or not blood type, they did the DNA. It's not Ian Tate's, but it's a close male relative. Boom goes the dynamite. And now we're at Rikers. Novak is talking to Ian and his lawyer, Daphne Zuniga, and telling him she's got a sweet deal for him if he recants his statement. And he's like, it's the truth. I fought, he fought, he forced himself on me and I fought back. And they're like, okay, when did you dump the body? And he's like, I don't recall. And they're like, why does this matter? And Casey Novak is like, I think your client knows. And he goes, he caught you, didn't he? And Ian's like, shut up. And then they're like, we found your father's blood. And the lawyer is like, then you have to drop the charges. And Casey's like, why don't you sit your ass down? Because if your client doesn't want to go down for accessory, he better listen up. So she slowly sits down and it's very satisfying to see Casey just whip people into shape. He kind of says to Casey, you have no idea. And then Casey starts in on this like little monologue about how James knew how you felt, like wanting to change yourself, but you can't. He was someone who understood you and now he's gone. You went to the hospital not because James attacked you, it's because your father attacked you. And then Ian spills the tea. He's like, he didn't mean to. He was shocked seeing me like that. And um, like, just tell them he wasn't himself. It wasn't his fault. So he's like really into making sure his dad doesn't get in trouble for killing his boyfriend. And so next, they're barging into Daddy Tate's office and he's like, what the hell? And they arrest him his ass in what looks like a bunch of gay men that he's trying to reprogram. So now we're at the top of Act 4. We see Novak pulling up to the courthouse on a bike with a helmet and everything. I don't know if we've ever seen this again, but I'm here for it. And... uh, Right when she gets there, we meet a defense attorney, Dave Seaver, who is in seven episodes of SVU, three original recipes, including this current season of the new Law & Order reboot. And uh, But this is his first episode. This is his first appearance. And he has defended some classic wild people on the show, like the mushroom guy from Wet, the twin con artist from Bombshell. Like, he's been all over the place. He's in Families, the one about the, uh, you know, brother I slept with my sister. So a lot of good ones. Also... Interesting thing about Dave Seaver, the Wikipedia, the fandom Wikipedia, says that his full name is Marion Dave Seaver. But I wonder what episode it is where we find out that his real first name is Marion. Also, it's revealed in an episode of Law & Order that he not only is a lawyer, but he graduated from Harvard Medical School too. I wonder if Neil Baer was trying to like put a little bit of himself into this Dave Seaver character. Yeah, but I know if your first name is Silly, you always go with the middle name. The, people oh, like sure. to do that. I know a it's lot of guys so with the middle It's just so funny name. to me. He's a very secondary character on the show that he has a secret first name. That's <laughs> funny to me. Like, it's not like we find out that Olivia's first name is really like Priscilla, you know? Like, yeah. but um, I've, I always have loved him because he. He's funny. He's he's like yeah. always got a funny line. Um, he's sassy and confident and fun. Yeah, he's um he, even though he's only been only but like in seven episodes, 
he's really made an impact. Like, I assumed he was in 20-plus episodes because he is so memorable as a... Well, this actor's name is Michael Boatman. He's a longtime, very successful actor. His resume includes Spin City, Arliss, and The Good Fight. So... Maybe you've not seen him in 20 episodes of SVU, but he's been in hundreds of episodes of television. So Absolutely. He's, he's out there. He's, he's yeah. rich. He's out there. <laughs> so he immediately teases Casey about the bike and is like, how environmentally conscious. It's funny. And then he introduces himself, but Casey passes on the handshake and he's the guy that's defending Roger Tate. Casey immediately roasts him and is like, oh yeah, I remember you from state Senate elections. I didn't vote for you. You burnt. And, uh, He's like, no one did. It's okay. My shrink says it's made me less self-destructive. And I'm like, wow, how are you self-destructive, man, who is a high-powered lawyer as well as holding a medical degree from Harvard? I'd love to hear what you do to, like, let loose. And Casey's like, dude, you want the conservative vote? That's fine, but this ain't the client to do it with. This guy's not about family values. He's just a straight-up killer. And Dave's like, he was defending his son from a rapist. And Casey says, Ian admitted the sex was consensual, so that's actually not going to work. And he's like... Yes, his client was wrong, but he's still justifiable homicide because he thought that he was being attacked. So he slaps a motion on Casey, and now we're in the judge's chambers, and he's pitching his defense to the judge that Roger Tate thought James Reed was raping his son, Ian. He brings up a penal code, which says you can use deadly force to stop forcible sodomy. And Casey's like, well, that's fucking dumb because no reasonable person thinks that two men having sex means rape automatically. And he, his research, this man's research focuses on aggression, deviant behavior, and promiscuity in gay men. So he's got the studies to back it up. And Novak's like, his studies are not accepted by the scientific community. They are bullshit. And Seaver's like, I'm not trying to say that they are like legit studies. I'm using them to go towards his proof of his state of mind. He didn't know his son was gay. So this is basically like a secondhand panic defense, like gay panic defense, you know? It's like, my son couldn't possibly be gay, so this man's attacking him. And Casey's like, this is an attempt to encourage and exploit bigotry against homosexuals, and he's going for jury nullification. Which I don't really know what that means, and I should probably look it up. But the ju- I mean, we have so many lawyer listeners. Somebody just tell me what jury nullification is. The judge doesn't want to throw out a defense just because the jury might believe it. He wants to let the jury decide. So now we're in court. Ian is on the stand explaining that his dad has a key to his apartment and the night of the murder, he was bringing over dinner and Ian thought that he was out of town. He describes how his dad caught him in bed, pulled James away from him, pushed him into the wall two or three times. He heard a crack and James stopped fighting and he was dead. So his dad then attacked him and kept asking, how can you do this? How could you do this to me? Now Dave Seaver gets his turn and quickly calls Ian a lifelong liar for being in the closet. Like, so wild. He's like, have you ever seen your dad be violent before? And he's like, he's never been violent with me. The only time I've ever seen it was when a kid was picking on me at school. He got in a fight with the kid's dad and broke his nose. And so Dave Seaver's like, oh, so he's only violent when he's defending you. And then he says, why did you confess? And Ian is like so self-hating. He's like, nobody gets that this all happened because of me and because of what I am. If I weren't so sick, I could have controlled myself. It was my fault and I didn't want my dad going to jail for my mistake. Very fucked up. And, um, you know, I hope he... Well, we we see what happens. So in the next scene, Dave Seaver is interviewing one of Roger Tate's colleagues who has a wild accent. This is called Connecticut Lockjaw. It's like, I'm from Connecticut. And this is like, she talks in a way where her mouth never opens when she speaks. And she's like, we did a study with Tate on 10,000 homosexual men and found, like, it's a horrible, her voice. I Like, this actress is funny to me. It's so funny. Her, this 
way of talking, but I knew women like this in Connecticut where I grew up, like older women with like yeah, helmet I wonder, hair um, and voices like this. If it stops the wrinkles from forming, you know, like Beckham oh, doesn't yeah. smile. Keep your face completely still, yeah. darling. Um, no, one time this woman, I worked at this store in my town, very fancy shop, and the woman who owned it was like this very older woman with Connecticut lockjaw, helmet hair, set hair, very like just that vibe. And she one time came in and said something to my friend that my friend and I say to each other all the time. And she goes, uh, little sweetheart, tell your mother I left the pills in the garage. And like, that's our favorite thing. I, I've known this girl for 20 plus years. I was 16 when this joke happened and I've been saying it for more than 30 years, I'll say that. Um, no, no, more than 20 years. God, I'm not I'm not 56. Okay, let's see. Um, 46. Um, anyway, their study of 10,000 men that are gay found that they solicited sex from minors, engaged in high-risk behavior, and had violent sexual relations with more than heterosexual people. And it's like, actually, in our research, we found that heterosexuals actually love to have sex with minors. So this is um, definitely not real research. She says that uh, gay men have psychological problems. They're more likely to be depressed, alienated, and have issues with rage. Now it's Novak's turn. And she's like, so um, remind me where your studies have been published. And she's like, they're still being considered. And Casey goes, good luck with that. And it's very great. And so... She's like, why does every other study actually say that pedophiles are more likely to be heterosexual? And she goes, well, that's a bias within the so-called mainstream psychology. And it's like, okay, Tom Cruise. So then Casey goes, so when the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, removed homosexuality from its list of mental disorders in 1973, that was all a big conspiracy. And like, you know, it's like, this woman's testimony is bullshit. But now we've got Roger on the stand. And... He's like, I never suspected my son was gay. I wish I had. And they're like, wouldn't you have disowned him? And he goes, no, I love him. I would have done anything to help him. And Casey's like, so you guys are close, but you're not that close if you didn't know he was gay. And Casey goes, you were also going to let him take the fall for murder. You love Ian, but not as much as you love yourself. And he goes, I was protecting my son from a man I thought was raping him. Casey goes, why dump the body? Conceal the evidence. Why not call the police and tell them what a righteous guy you are? And I love that. I'm like, hell, hell yeah, Casey. Hell yeah. Yeah. So basically, this guy go, this guy tries to really turn up on Casey and he's like, how'd you, how dare you question my love for my son? And Casey's like, oh, because your whole defense is predicated on him being a deviant. So how is that love? And Casey is a really great lawyer. So at the squad, Casey shows up to tell the gang that two jurors are believing this asshole. So it might be enough to hang the jury. And then Casey's like, all I've done, if this doesn't, if this gets like a mistrial, then all I've done is out this poor kid. And like, I feel bad about that. And then she goes, Stabler, you've got kids. Do you ever wonder if they're gay? And he goes, I haven't asked. And Liv goes, you know your kids. You would know if one of them was gay. And Tate's whole defense is that he never had any inkling at all. And Casey's like, I just don't buy it, but I can't prove it. And so... Casey mentions he had a girlfriend in high school and lives like, oh, we never found a girlfriend because we were looking for boyfriends. Um, so they're like, go find, go visit this little girlfriend and see if she knew. And um, I don't know why that would matter, but here we are. And so now we're talking to Sandy and she's like, I haven't talked to Ian for years. And they're like, yeah, but you guys dated in high school. And she goes, we were good friends, but I wouldn't say that we dated. He was never really interested in the physical part and he never came out to me, but I just knew and I was happy to be his beard so like he wouldn't get the shit kicked out of him like the other guys. And did you ever tell anyone that Ian was gay? Like tell his dad? This is an interest. I forgot who I was with talking about it, but like 
I would love some sort of reunion of all the girls that knowingly went with their gay best friends to prom and homecoming and all yeah. the dances. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. know who I was talking to or about what, but it it, it does seem like something yeah. um, special. It seems like a special yeah. little club to be a in. A special bond, yeah. Yeah. So... So yeah, they're like, did you ever tell anyone like Ian's dad that he was gay? And she's like, Ian would have killed me. Like, no, I didn't do that. And then from behind them, we hear, we see Sandy's sassy mom leaning on the doorframe going, I told him and I love her already. <laughs> and she's like, well, like, for What's a up? second, you, for a second, you weren't scared that she was bad. I told him. What? Like for a second when she goes, I told him, you didn't even for a second think that maybe she was like a bad Christian, like a lunatic too. That was like, just so you know, your son is gay. Or did oh, you right no, away know I didn't she get was good? I didn't get that vibe. No, I thought she was I, good. No, I was scared for a moment. And then I like relaxed. I was like, oh, okay, this is one of yeah, our yeah, friends. Yeah. Like, but I was actually nervous for a second. She like reminds me of one of my aunts. Like she's just like funny to me. Like my aunt Grace, I feel like she reminds me of. You met her. Like, and she's just like, listen, he was such a sweet boy. He was like my second child. I could see he was suffering. And I thought Roger should know. I told him Roger senior, or, or I told them that during their senior year, I called him and I said, Roger, you should talk to Ian. He's very depressed. I said, Roger, your son is gay and you're making an incredibly difficult situation worse. You need to be a father. And then she says that Roger Tate thanked her and said, never contact me again. So that went over well. And now we're in a conference room at the DA's office and Casey's sitting there with Ian as his father and Michael Boatman walk in. And Novak has a one-time offer, murder to 20 to life. And she goes, I won't go for the hate crime. And he gets to choose the prison that he goes to. And Seaver's like, 20 years, what the fuck are you talking about? And then she brings up Sandy's mother and Ian goes, and like, you see the dad's eyes widen and he's like, fuck, like this woman, I didn't think she'd come back to haunt me. And Ian goes, you knew all this time, all these years and you knew. And he's like, it's not like that. And Ian goes, yes, it is, dad. I told myself it was okay if he thinks gays are sick and freaks because if he knew about me and he really knew me, he wouldn't say that or think it. And now he realized his, his dad was purposefully hurting him all these years. And who would do that to someone they love? Like, who would do that to their son? It's like when people are like, I love you, I just vote against your interests. You know, like, I love my gay son. I just vote completely against their interests. It's like so fucked up. So he goes, how can you think that you could make me more straight than I've already tried to make myself? And he's like, all you've done is make me wish I were dead. And then he walks out. And it, to Roger, it looks like maybe it's sinking in a little bit. And now outside, Casey's talking to Ian outside the courthouse on a cute little bench. And she's like, your dad took the plea. And he's sitting there like, every time somebody walks by, I wonder if they know that I'm gay. And he says, James always talked about loving being gay and said that guys are more fun. And Casey's like, I got to agree. Because, you know, Casey's a little horn dog. And he says, everything's different now. And Casey apologizes for kind of like outing him before he was ready for that to happen. And he goes, and she says, I'm sorry. And he goes, yeah, I'm not. And then he walks off and we hope maybe this guy has a good life living in New York as an out gay man. And that's Dick Wolf, baby. Well, and hopefully once his dad goes to jail, he can take all his dad's money to live in a nice place. Fucking yeah. squeeze that asshole for all he's worth. Yeah. And I hope that also that guy going to jail just kind of like puts all that research just like out the window. Like no one's going to publish a guy who's in jail for killing his son's boyfriend. I mean, people are not... Today on Twitter, it's trending. You know, Fauci created... Uh, 
created coronavirus all over again. And people are like, the studies show it. It's like you can find a study to do anything you want. You quit Twitter. Are you still on there seeing what's going on? I only go on for White Lotus. Got it. So you don't have to sign up. I just learned. So I just like, I uh, right after I watch an episode of White Lotus, I just Google White Lotus Twitter trending. And then I just go through all the <laughs> White Lotus tweets. I just want to see all the theories. I want to see what I missed. I want to yeah. see insight. There are, you know, I, I love the memes. I love the fun. You know, I love community. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'll take you through, um, you know, some info after this Great. break. Can't wait. Welcome back, everybody. So this is mostly about Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church, but I just wanted to cover um, who I think uh, the Siegel guy was based on a little bit was Charles W. Socrates. 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 Yeah. Who cares? We hate this guy. Yeah. You know, I don't need to learn how to pronounce someone that sucks. So Charles, it's definitely based on this guy. He, um, Charles was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst who publicly for a long ass time, even after it was considered scientifically like unacceptable to do so, that homosexuality was a condition amenable to treatment and conversion therapy. He died in 2005 after working as a clinical professor of psychiatry for many years at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx till 1996. My thing is, I looked up this Albert Einstein school and it's ranked like 50 something. It's very good. My mom's partner went there. So why, how is this quack a teacher there? Uh, That's a great question. Because there was like a smart guy from my high school who went there too. And I just always thought it was good ranked well in in New York City. And then it's like, they have this guy who truly thinks being gay is a disease. Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Maybe he had tenure. Is that how it works? Like, I just, I don't get it. Could be, who knows? But he believes that being gay is a neurotic adaptation that in men stems from absent fathers and overly doting mothers. So that's like 100% from the episode. Um, And he wouldn't just admit he was wrong even after the AAPA um, rescinded its definition of homosexuality as a form of mental illness in 1973. And he did have a child who was openly gay um, and is now a nationally prominent gay rights advocate. But he, um, during his life, inflicted suffering on the lives of gay and lesbian people um, and anyone in the LGBTQ plus community in general. So, and I guess this was, he wasn't religious, He, I don't think. So it's not like, well, the Bible says this. But I just like that his first three marriages to women ended in divorce and he had a fourth wife. Like, yeah. Why is being straight so good? Like, you can't keep a wife. I don't understand. Yeah, no, this guy seems like a piece of shit. Yeah, piece of shit. Okay, so we're going to move um, on. So I just thought I would do a little blurb on this guy. Um, I don't, I don't, if you wanted to know more information, go read a book. It's not my job. Um, but we're moving on to the Westboro Baptist Church. I feel like you guys all know about it. So Fred Phelps, truly nobody wanted to be around this man. Like he died in March of 2014 and all the articles were like, he's dead. Good riddance. Um, Like as one of the articles wrote, he has very few admirable achievements. And then one 
of them was like, he was a colossal jerk. He's dead. Like no one was, no one liked this man. Esquire ended an article about him after his death that said only the good die young. Fred Phelps was a very old man. So <laughs> very hated individual, um, but he didn't mind. He really didn't mind. And he had a quote in my enemy, the Wichita Eagle. Um, <laughs> where he said, if I had nobody mad at me, what right would I have to claim that I was preaching the gospel? And his whole thing was like, people were mad at Jesus too, so they should be mad at me. And yeah. that. So that's kind of his vibe. So he, everyone hated him and he kind of thrived off being hated. Um, he was born November 13th, 1929 in Meridian, Mississippi. And even though the Westboro Baptist Church has absolutely no ties to Baptist denomination association or, at all, like they've very much separated themselves. Most members disavowed him. Uh, he was still ordained as a minister in Southern Baptist Convention at age 17. So I guess you don't need much education to become a Baptist minister since this guy became truly ordained at 17 years old. <laughs> um, since 1951, Phelps has been arrested repeatedly for assault, battery, threats, trespassing, disorderly conduct, and contempt of court. He has been convicted four times. Um, so he served like two 30-day jail sentences for disorderly conduct for verbal harassment in 1994. Do you know about him? Like, obviously, we all know about the church and everything, but like, yes, you do know. Yeah, about I this actually guy. like. I know about him very passively, so I'm interested for you to tell me more. But I read a really interesting article about one of his granddaughters who used to be part of his thing and then has fully left. And it was just an interesting thing about her disentangling herself from this like horrible bigoted organization. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll definitely touch on that granddaughter, Megan. Um, I watched yeah. a really cool interview with her. Um, so he was, I tried, there was one documentary, but you had to order a DVD. <laughs> there was no streaming. I was like, I'm not ordering a DVD. And then the other doc was like, you had to download BBC Player. And I'm like, you know what? I guess I'm back to reading. So, like I said, he had, he was a deeply disagreeable personality. He liked to pick fights with neighbors. Um, he had a thirst for notoriety, and he knew how to get it. Um, he His first little taste of fame was in 1951 when Time Magazine profiled his street preaching crusade against dirty humor. He did not like dirty jokes. And in 1952, he also got um, a Time write-up, like, for doing street ministry work on college campuses against petting and making out in backseat of cars. So I guess he hated hand jobs Hooking and getting up. and yeah. felt getting felt up. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Don't even get him started on fingering. Oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're going straight to hell. Uh, but he was just obsessed with human sexuality and controlling it for truly six decades. And so I'm doing what you're not supposed to do, but like, what was this man hiding? Like, what are you hiding, sir? So up in everyone's business. I feel like he's like fucking sheep or something or like eating <laughs> shit in a dominatrix office. So <laughs> while of ev while evangel I can't even say this word. Evangelizing. If and I went to an evangelical college. I should know how to say this. <laughs> 
while evangelizing, um, whatever, in, you know, one of the worst states in America, in Arizona. So he was in Phoenix, and that's where he met um, Margie Sims. And they got married in 1952. And two years later, they settled in Topeka, Kansas. Um, He founded the church in 1955, and he described it as primitive Baptist. So whatever that means. Um, To make income during this time, he sold vacuum cleaners and baby carriages. So he is like a salesman of some sorts. Um, And wildly, though, he was able to get a law degree from Washburn University in 1962. After attending and getting kicked out and having to shuffle around four different colleges and none of them seem real, he went to Bob Jones University. That's a bowling man. That's a bowling star. That's not a college. He got kicked out. Um, John Muir uh, College, um, Prairie Bible Institute, and Arizona Bible Institute, where he was finally able to get a degree. So that's his education. And so most of the family, they live on the family compound. And um, they all kind of practice law. So, and before that, like all 13, so he had 13 kids. And all 13 kids had to sell candy door to door in the 70s. And the proceeds were the main income source for the family. So he's straight, I hate when I see this. He's straight up as like running a Subway basketball kid selling M&M's business to support his family. Yeah. I, it really, it really hurts my soul when I see children having to sell things with like parents glaring at them from the distance. Like, it's just not a good way to live. And I feel really yeah. bad. So these kids had to go door to door selling candy. But I, I personally, for just my basketball team, I loved the little briefcase of chocolate bars I got to sell. <laughs> it was like Reese's. It was like a fun ass box. Sometimes we would sell airheads in a Ziploc bag. But when I got that little chocolate briefcase, I did really enjoy yeah. it. I always sold magazine subscriptions and wrapping paper. My parents wouldn't let, see anything. Like, my parents wouldn't let me participate in things like that. It was called the Great Paper Chase. And which but is when it was mag- up. when it was magazine subscriptions, I probably talked about this on the podcast, but my mom's a pediatrician with two offices, so she would just buy a ton of subscriptions for magazines at her office, and I would always win the limo ride to McDonald's. I want to take a limo ride to McDonald's. But like, but like 20 of us would win the limo ride to McDonald's. Like there were like 20 of us in the limo. It was like the top 20 sellers. Like it wasn't just me. Imagine me alone with like a Happy Meal. Well, yeah. and the principal or something, you know, sometimes <laughs> you get to do something like that. No, but it is weird that it was like um, they encouraged children to just knock on doors and sell wrapping paper. Like even after kids were put on milk cartons. Yeah, I did that. I knocked on doors in my neighborhood. Yeah. I was like, do you want any wrapping paper? And then, like, we don't even have it on us. They're all, they're buying it all out of a catalog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not, like, carrying bins. <laughs> yeah. We're like, we'll be back to deliver it when it comes in. It's the weirdest thing. So, yeah, the kids were just out there working, um, like Kara Clank. And um, people from their town hated them as well. Um, but if they needed to win a case, they would still go to them for cases. And that was, um, who said that? Religious writer Bill Sherman after visiting the town and family. And he told that to NPR. So 11 of his 13 children have law degrees. Um, Yeah, and they have this law firm and they actually did a lot of civil rights cases and stuff like that. But so yeah, everyone in the town is disgusted, hates them. But if they have to go to court, they go to this family. But is it like civil rights? Like I have the civil right to not bake a cake for a gay couple because I don't believe in it? Like No, like they truly represented black people um, when they had issues. Oh, wow. Yeah, money's money, I think, to them. Um, And they're litigious. They're very litigious. We'll get more into like what drives okay. them, but they're just like um, very litigious. 
That's all I have Damn. to say. Like they, um, they outside of the selling candy, like the way this church makes money is suing towns that won't let them protest and winning. Yeah. Like they know the law so well. They're kind of geniuses in the law and litigation. And so they kind of sue people constantly and win. They're terrorized. They're like terrorists. Um, so yeah, like I said, so the family law practice pays for the bills for all their travels across the country. And they also make money suing the communities that stop them from demonstrating. And um, the children of the Phelps family are raised in the church's beliefs and their upbringing offers very few changes, like, or like chance, very few chances to integrate into mainstream society. They have no friends. Um, like everyone in school kind of hated them. They were outcasts, all the children. Um, and they are taught to hold hateful beliefs and that anybody not in their church is going to hell. And that is that. Four of the children are estranged um, and nine are still in the church today. Um, one of his estranged children, Nathan, said that Phelps abused his children and his wife and it cultivated an atmosphere of, uh, of fear to maintain his authority. And the, extra the estranged kids have talked about being beaten with a mattock handle, which is a type of axe. Um, so he was a physically abusive man. But it's just this one son said it. There's not really, there's not a bunch of information about the abuse within. Okay. Um so, I don't know. And then, like, Megan, the granddaughter that ended up escaping, like, there, she was quoted saying, like, outside of all this fucked up shit that they made him do, like, they did homework together and events and they cooked together and, like, there, it, it was weird for her because they did good parental or grandfathery things, but then also were demons. And so yeah. it's kind of like hard. So his first um, church service was held November 27th, 1955. Um, and in 1964, he founded the law firm that I mentioned, Phelps Char Chartered. Um, and it represents the church in all of its civil suits. Um, the Kansas Supreme Court, though, disbarred him in 1979, stating that he showed little regard for the ethics of his profession. <laughs> He's also um, run, uh, he tried to run in five Democratic primaries and Kansas, but he never won. Why Democratic? Well, he hates everyone. He, um, like, he, he hates Ronald Reagan. He hates Republican. Like, the he hates everyone. It's not, um, wow. It's not based on Republican, Democrat, right wing, left wing. Anyone outside the church is going to hell. Like, he does. Right. But if anybody's going to vote for somebody like that, it's, it's Republicans, more likely. Oh, no, you're totally right. Um, I read somewhere the only two people that he liked were Fidel Castro and Saddam Hussein. Oh my God. And that at See, one- this is just like a megalomaniac with like probably some serious issue. I mean, that's like- Well, he was born in 1929. Isn't that like the depression? Yeah. So he grew up starving. Maybe like he didn't get the nourishment he needed for his brain cells to form. Like who fucking yeah. knows? Um, so we're going now, like that's kind of the background on him. And now for the Westboro Baptist Church. So the website is still active and it's godhatesfwords.com. Like, that's the website URL. Yeah. Not Westboro Baptist Church. And what happens when you go to it? Oh, I went to it. I'll, uh, oh, yeah. I'll, uh, you know, I can I can tell you right now. It's um, on their website. It's kicking. They're up to date. Like they have um, up to date of all the latest sermons, some of which are like days ago from when we're recording. Like they are uploading YouTube, like they are uploading videos and sermons to this day and they have public a public preaching schedule. So if you're free in February, um, they'll be at the T-Mobile Center in Kansas uh, picketing the Judds, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen and Disney on Ice. So, if that's what you'd like to be doing, 
So Westboro is a Kansas-based church um, that the Southern Law Poverty Center describes as a family-based cult and arguably the most obnoxious and rabid hate group in America. And even though they are socially conservative Christian, um, like right vibes, they are not patriots. They're um, on the compound is an upside-down American flag. They've stomped on the flag. So yeah, they hate everyone, not just liberals. Um, Like they went after Ronald Reagan. They don't give a fuck. They really don't. Um, They believe that God is unforgiving, a vengeful God, poised to destroy a nation of sinners. He began his anti-gay demonstrations around 1991 after one of his grandsons was propositioned at Topeka Gage Park. But like, that sounds gay as fuck. Of course, there's some propositioning happening. I don't know. Like, gauge, I don't know. So that's when they started. And then they gained notoriety in 1998 when its members picketed at the funeral of Matthew Shepard, who was a 21-year-old student at the University of Wyoming who was brutally attacked, tied to a fence, and left to die all because he was gay. That one of the most horrific crimes in the nation, I would say. Mm -hmm. They started protesting at the funerals of public figures, children, um, like killed in bus accidents, soldiers killed in war. Um, One time they were planning on protesting at a nine-year-old's funeral of Christina Green, and she was one of the victims. Do you remember the shooting in in Tucson? It was outside of a supermarket where six people died. Another 13 were wounded, including U.S. Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords. Mm Mm-hmm. So they wanted to go protest at this nine-year-old's funeral. So Arizona actually quickly enacted legislation to ban protests within 300 feet of the funeral and made it illegal for protesters to be present within um, within an hour of the funeral's start or finish. And the church actually decided not to attend and ruin the child's funeral because a radio station offered airtime for exchange of not going because their whole thing is like attention. They just want attention. Yeah, fame, fame, fame. They did the same thing when um, five Amish girls were murdered in the Pennsylvania schoolhouse in 2006. Another, like that, I remember that really shocking my life and the life of this country. And it's so fucked up thinking how many more shootings have happened since. Like, I just just remember that, like, ruining ruining my life. Like, uh, that was so horrific. And now it's like... That was just somebody just walked into a schoolhouse and killed a bunch of kids. I don't remember this. Amish kids, yeah. Oh, my God. But they did the same thing. Like, they didn't pick it for one hour of airtime on a talk show. Shirley Phelps Roper, she's actually the daughter, and she's in charge of the cult today. Um, She was on Hannity and Combs on Fox News on October 3rd, 2006, and she said they did deserve to die about the Amish girls. Thank you, Fox News, for giving her a platform. Yeah, that's actually what I was thinking. It's like, I just, I don't think I was in the know as much or maybe Fox News and like Trump and everything has changed and made it worse. But like, how, what the fuck? They've always just been twisted. Mm -hmm. You would have someone on talking about how these like young girls deserve to die. It's like sick to me. It's really sick. So, yeah, and then after all of that, the dozens of, like, dozens of states and uh, for the federal government passed laws to create buffer areas near the sites of funerals. So they kind of, like, helped legislation <laughs> to leave people alone. And um, a lot of times, Fred Phelps would, like, call ahead of time and get all the permits in, in a row to protest at these places, and then it would get a media frenzy, and then he wouldn't even go because he would be offered the radio. Like, he Mm -hmm. just wanted attention, so sometimes he wouldn't even attend some of these. It was just Mm. to, like, create a storm. 
The Southern Poverty Law Center states that the church claims to have picketed more than 40,000 times since they started in June 1991. Other reports said like 53,000, but this is just like off of their word and they're truly unhinged. Um, reportedly, they picketed a local restaurant in Topeka, Kansas every day for three years because its owner knowingly employed a lesbian. It's so fucked up. In 2011, Shirley Phelps Roper, the church's spokeswoman, said to NPR that the members want to punish Americans for tolerating homosexuality. They picket funerals to make people angry, to reject God, and be condemned to hell. So they're, like, twisted. Like, they don't want to save people like what we're used to Christians doing. Um, she continues, in quotes, we're supposed to blind their eyes, stop up their ears, and harden their hearts so they cannot see, hear, or understand and be converted and receive salvation. One of the granddaughters who ended up leaving, Megan Phelps Roper, said that when she was 11, Mother Teresa and Princess Diana died in one week. And in their home, every, the what was said was, oh, look, two whores died in one week. So like, that's how she was raised. Like, that's the language. And that's how she learned about life. Um, and yeah, like they just knew nothing else. But like, that's how everything was talked about. They were celebrating that people were in hell. Yeah. And and Megan um, was asked one time on Reality Check with John Avalon, extremist beat on CNN, if there was ever any questioning in the house or discussions if this was the best way to go about life. And uh, she said, absolutely not, LOL. And I've mentioned this, but she said, like, success to them was to get attention. And the more attention they got meant that the media and people, um, and for them, that was evidence for them that God made their work prosper. So attention was validation that they were doing the right thing in the eyes of God. And their goal of picketing isn't to win followers, but only to warn people of their coming damnation. They believe that God does not love everyone. They believe God does not preach love, but that he is a vengeful God. And they claim that God doesn't just hate the sin, but also the sinner. So like truly hateful. Because I feel like sometimes religious people like um, hide their bigotry with mm -hmm. by pretending it's love, but these people are not. They don't pretend. Yeah, they're just like, I'll pray for you. Like, but they don't, you know, wish you damnation. Like, these people te seem to celebrate in people's internal damnation. Um, and they had a huge win in March of 2011 in the Supreme Court where the First Amendment uh, protected their right to hold anti-gay protests outside the military funerals. So even with all the funerals they were protesting and the attention that they received um, and this like huge victory in the Supreme Court, you would think this is like a giant enterprise, but the church only had 100 members. There were only 100 members of this church. Because they're all, too extreme. They're too extreme to be big. I know. And, and it's all from the family of one man. Like, it's mostly all family members or distant family. So it's all people related to Fred Phelps. They have no friends anywhere, no other Baptists, no far-right organizations. They are very isolated, very, very isolated. They're banned in the UK and Canada, um, and the group neither solicits nor accepts outside donations. Fred died in 2014 and has been, and like I said, it's been being run by his daughter, Shirley Phelps Roper, who is the public face of the church um, with her sister, Margie Phelps. Um, no communications are allowed with those who leave. The children that have left have spoke out about the brainwashing they received from a super young age and again, like allegations of physical and mental abuse. Megan Phelps Roper, um, she was Phelps' granddaughter and began protesting at funerals when she was 19 years old. She said their whole life centered around the church and it 
was mostly family and extended family members and that's it. And she grew up with the mentality of like us against the world and we were good and everyone was bad and we all had to warn them and that they the only hope that to save these people if they could ever be saved was this group. Um, she said they were also careful to never ever use their personal beliefs. Like all the signs said, God hates. And, you know, it was all about God's standards and his standards of living and it had nothing to do with them. So it wasn't like, we hate it. We're just mm, like, God right. hates this. Um, she was appointed to running the Westboro Twitter account. Um, and that's when she began questioning the church's hateful teaching. So that was in 2009. And so then people started asking questions and digging into her theology um, via Twitter. This is like an actual good thing that happened with Twitter. And she was able to have her faith shaken. And when she started to feel, and then she like started to feel empathy and then became ashamed of what she was doing. Um, and Twitter helped her find internal inconsistencies. Um, she actually met her now husband on Twitter and he was one of the people tweeting with her to help like change her opinions. Um, and she said she was like really shocked because- I can't believe Twitter changed somebody's opinion. I know. <laughs> like, I can't believe it happened. I know. And like, it, it was just cool because she said, obviously, like, there was so much, like, fuck you, fuck you. Yeah. But she was really shocked. because, But she was used to that because it's us versus the world. And then she, what shocked her was, like, the empathy she received from people and people actually questioning her and being kind and, like... And her husband was one of those guys. Um, so she left the church in 2012 with her sister, Grace, and they flee to South Dakota. Ew, like, girl, there's a lot of better states to go to. Um, I'm I'm being so mean to these states in this... Um, yeah, you did reporting. say something mean about Arizona before, and I do want to say that when we were at Tempe, Arizona, doing a live show, you really enjoyed the hotel there, I remember. <laughs> I always have a good time in Arizona. I do a joke about this, but, like, Repub like Republicans who can't afford a boat is embarrassing to me. Like, to be landlocked Republicans, and they're all swingers. I don't know. Like, I just do funny jokes about Arizona. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But South Dakota, truly, like, no comics. Go check schedules. No comics go, no musicians. No one, they don't have anything else. I don't even know if they have an art museum outside of the Mount Rushmore, which is, like, a disgusting thing, you know? Like... <laughs> If you have fun things to do in South Dakota, let me know. My sister went with, you know, once. <laughs> so the next month, like after her and her sister Grace left, um, was the Sandy Hook Massacre. And Westboro announced it would protest the memorials. And she said she remembers feeling relief, like not having to be there. And then she felt distress over the amount of time she had done the exact same thing. And since she left, there's an understanding that even if her family sees her in public, there should be absolutely no interaction at all. And they pretend not to see her. Um, but she still tries to reach out to them because there's nothing to lose on her end. Like, she still doesn't get to see them anyways. So she sends birthday gifts and letters and does public interviews in hopes that they'll see her and, like, learn something new and be able to leave. Um, but now she has a daughter and she's married to this dude and she is in, still in South Dakota. Um, but she really misses her family and she doesn't think that she's special and she hopes and believes in their family and like the family's ability to change because she's just like them and that I really like too like she just was like I was with them I was brainwashed I did it and I was able to see the light so she kind of has hope that um, one day they can all 
learn something and mm. get out of there. Um, so I watched an interview when she wrote her book in like 2016, 17, and she ended up thanking this guy, John, um, for writing this big article in 2013 because she said um, she had never, she didn't know people were going to be empathetic to her and like having that article be written about her in such a kind and like hopeful manner changed her whole perspective on the world and like having all the comments and support really helped her. Um, and she was, uh, quote in 2013, we were told a lot of things that weren't true and we assumed they were true because we didn't see any evidence otherwise, but we weren't really looking. And that really stuck with me because it made me think about, um, like the George Floyd protests and like, the BLM movement and just, like, being someone that felt, like, why wasn't I taught this in school? Mm. And then um, a friend of mine tweeted, like, you knew you were being taught the truth and you didn't go look for it. And I just remember being like, yeah, I guess I never searched for the truth and I never educated myself more on, like, um, civil rights and Black history in America and, like, not knowing these things. So sometimes we can, like, blame school systems or what we're given or the media or anything, but we have to remember, like, if you're not looking for the truth or trying to expand your mind, that you can be stuck in yeah. some regressive um, bad things and to just, like, always be on the lookout to change your mind. Yeah. And that's yeah. that. So hopefully, I mean, they're, they were a group with a lot of notoriety. So hopefully you guys learned something new or learned deeper shit about these people. But if not, I hope you hate South Dakota. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, <laughs> and we have- I'm glad she got out. I really did like that article talking to her. Like it was uh, like, it, it, there's possibility. Sometimes you just think some of these people are beyond hope and like there is possibility of like getting them out. So yeah, it's just like hurts my heart knowing like her mom and aunts and these people that raised her are just like, fuck her. Bye. You're dead to me now. And there's interviews with the mom. There's, like, them, like, protest, and she, like, they just don't give a fuck about the people that leave. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a great interview that's going to cleanse this palate perfectly, so don't go anywhere. Okay, our guest today is an actor who's been a fixture on your TV for over 30 years. You know him for his roles in Spin City, Arliss, China Beach, and The Good Fight. But today, and many other episodes of SVU, you know him as the snappy defense attorney, Dave Seaver. Guys, enjoy our conversation that we enjoyed so much with the amazing Michael Boatman. Congrats on such an amazing career. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Do you that feel like you've killed it or what? You know, that's a great question. I, I have to say I'm one of those people that, um, surprise, surprise, I'm an actor. I'm a little neurotic. Uh, I'm a little, uh, 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 not paranoid necessarily, but I'm definitely always sort of looking for the next, you know, the next hill to climb, if you will, you know? So every once in a while, when someone comes up to me and says, as, as is, this is what happened to me just last night, I watched your show all the way from kindergarten to, and I was, and this is an adult person talking to me. And she was talking about China Beach, which was a show I was on at the very beginning of my career in 1988. Yeah. And this is like an industry professional person who's an adult with kids. And I was just like, wow, really? I still feel like I'm 18 years old. I don't, you know. Totally. And then I look back and then I go, wow, I guess, you know, I've been around for a while. But listen, it makes, I'm 
so grateful and happy to still be here. And I'm one of those fortunate people. I, I get to do something I love. As as the joke goes, I, I would I would do this for free, and they pay me. You know, I mean, so. Wait, what do people recognize you the most from when they approach you? Oh, you know what? As time goes on, it's it changes. Um, of course, when China Beach was on, it was that. When Spin, when Spin City was on, it was that a lot. That was the biggest one for a long time because that had a larger audience and um, it was on for six seasons. But then I was also on a show called Arliss at the same time. And so, but that was a more specific audience. It was guys who also, liked Also, how sports. did you do that at the same time? I had an unbelievable agent, Bob Gersh, thank you very much, who just sort of juggled it in, in a way that made it kind of... And he was really smart because what happened was they actually shot it two separate times of the year. So Spin City shot from the fall into the spring, and then Arlish shot over the summer months. So that was the because initially they were well, they weren't sure they would be able to make it work. But when they realized that, you know, I'd basically be sitting all summer unemployed if I didn't do it, and you're like, oh, well, that makes sense. So it's just a really great piece of agenting work and, and good fortune on my part. Wait, but for China Beach, is that did you meet Neil Bear? And did that have anything to do with SVU? No. You know what's crazy? Oh, wow. And all, I, I want to say maybe, I think I might have spoken to Neil once in all of these years, like on the phone, like maybe at the very beginning when I started SVU back in, oh God, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think SVU, you started around 03. That, well, that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like maybe he, maybe he sent a message or I, I, I just remember some distant conversation with him. And then every time I was on the show, I'd go, where's Neil Bear? Where's Neil Bear? Never, where, and I never, I haven't laid eyes on the guy. It, oh, it, that's it blow, crazy. It ha, it's crazy. It really is. I'm like, you know, he, I got, it got this great job. I love this. I, I just started up again on the, the new, the new old Law and Order. Yeah. You know, um, playing the same character. And it's, I, I, you know, it's like, thank you, Neil Bear. I, you know, I've never been able to see, <laughs> speak to him. Every episode I watch, I go, it's the straight craziest thing in well, my life. Well, he's done our career. podcast a couple of times. And maybe if he comes back on, we'll be like, Michael Bowman I mean, wants to talk to you. <laughs> please, get, a, get us together. And you know what? Both those shows, uh, well, all of those shows, all of the Dick Wolf shows, they're such a sort of a big, they're just all part of such a huge machine. It's sort of hard to just like pin down one moving part of it just because you happen to be on the set. You know what I mean? There's so mm -hmm. much going on. So, Well, so if it wasn't through Neil Bear, how did your Dick Wolf journey begin? How did you start in the Dick Wolf universe? So I got a call. Wow, that's such a great question. I did. <laughs> I did. I think it was Law & Order first. So Spin City ended in 2000. Arliss ended in 2001. So around that time, actually, while we were still, while Spin City was still happening, they started this convention on SVU where they wanted sort of a recurring stable of defense attorneys. So uh, Barry Bostwick, I think, was the first of us on Spin City to, you know, to, to, to sort of get called. And I remember him telling me before, before they ever came to me to offer me um, the part of Dave Seaver. He said, yeah, I guess they're looking for some just regular, you know, actors, you know, familiar actors to play these sort of to come in and out. 
And I went, oh, that's cool. And then literally like two days later, I got a call. Hey, do you want to come on and, you know, play this character? Yeah. And now, of course, no actor um, ever thinks, you know, my God, 10, 12, 13. I I think, you know, years later, you know, that you are kind of playing the same part, but that the world has expanded in so many ways, you know, that that you can sort of become uh i mean yeah a recurring character but over i mean literally now almost decades yeah you know so well, it's, I think, it's very um, cool i think he's so memorable too you were really funny you're the funniest defense attorney maybe Susie esman too but like oh. as far as all the attorneys you Love really her. have all the fun you're like kind of sassy um <laughs> and like i've i've never been called sassy and really? I, I love it I kind of love I it. Wrote, I wrote funny, sassy, honest, self-aware, and flirty. That's oh. what I wrote about Dave ah. Stevens. You know what? Now that I think about it, the, all of those have sort of been called for. I, it, it's kind of crazy. I have defended or prosecuted at one point or another some actors and actresses that have gone on. I, I, I think I represented Zoe... Um, Saldana. Yeah, you know, well, not her, her dad, but I, I yeah, did you, did you know she would be um, in billionaire franchise uh, of movies? Co- <laughs> of course not. You know, it was like, it's, I, you know, pretty girl, young. I, I think she was, I don't know how old she was, or in her early 20s, maybe. Um, and then I, I, oh God, who was the, oh, Paula, Paula? Well, that's who you were really flirty with, Paula Patton in yes. Wet. And you know what? I never, wow, you're good. I never ever saw that episode, and I always wondered if that if it if that impression came off because, you know, it didn't call for it necessarily in the script. But I'm I'm the kind of actor where you know if if you give me a little if you give me a, a leash, I'll I'll take it and I'll run with yeah. it. Yeah, uh, but you should watch just, that one because it's a silly yeah. episode. Like uh, Benson eats mushrooms on accident and gets high. Like it's a silly one. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Okay, I have to see it. I always wondered. And like that. Paula Patton is very beautiful, and it feels like you're not the only man in the episode that is flirting with oh, her. Good. You know, like pretty much every man that encounters her is like, "Hello." Good. good. Um, but that's hilarious. But. In that episode, we actually just covered that episode at one of our live shows that we do. And you have such a funny moment because the actor Dave Krumholtz fires you. Like, you're not in that episode for too, too long because he fires you really quickly. And then you walk out and you go, big mistake. And it's like a very pretty woman moment. It's like, big mistake, huge. And we love it. Oh, that's funny. So I, I literally, for our live show, yeah. for our live show recently, I literally just took a picture of your face and I superimposed it on Julia Roberts from that scene in Pretty Woman. Yeah. And I wish I could show it to you right now, but I just oh, don't have my it. God, right. I wish I, wait, how is it that, how do you do a live show this way? This is hilarious. But we have PowerPoints. But we, yeah, we do a PowerPoint. So I was like, we were joking about how you had this Pretty Woman moment. And so I took a photo of your face and I put it on Julia. And I don't know how to do Photoshop at all. So it's like a very crude <laughs> yes. square picture yeah. of your head just splattered yeah. on her, you know. <laughs> That's hilarious. A Pretty Woman <laughs> moment. Oh my God. So Wait, do you, but how is... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was oh. just going to be like, how's Barry Boswick? <laughs> Love that man. Love that man. Uh, emailed or texted with him, um, I don't know, back in the summer, just, hey, how's it going? You know, he's in L.A. now. He went back to L.A. with his family, and he's, he's, he's Barry Boswick. Here, you know, the cra- one of the craziest moments of... Another crazy moment of just synchronicity and weirdness that didn't necessarily happened because of SVU, but it was all while 
we were both had, you know, by now we're sort of both back and forthing a little bit. I think maybe I'd done it once or twice. Um, and Bostwick had done it once. At one point, we were, where were we? We were on a lunch break or something, if I recall. And it was around Halloween. Now, we all had a green room on the set of Spin City. We were all, you know, we and most of us ate together. Mike Fox would come in sometimes and we'd all play ping pong or whatever, just shoot the shoot the crap. Connie Britton, you know, Jennifer Esposito, just everybody who was well, on I the show. I don't know if you time. know this, but Jennifer Esposito ends up, she ends up with Ice-T in SVU. They're, um... They get They're married. Engaged. Yeah, well, they get married, oh, no. but then they don't get the, married. Yeah. They have a wedding and then they don't get married. Yeah, but they're together. Are you kidding? I never saw that. <laughs> I have to look that up. Oh my god! But the the surreal Bostwick moment. Uh, Bostwick would come. Barry has a very has a scathing sense of humor. I mean he he can just cut you down with a look. I mean you know he's an enormous handsome man. He's six foot four. You know he walks in. He's one of the only men other than maybe George Clooney that I've seen who you walk down the street with Barry Boswick and the women all, and some men just sort of, they swoon. I mean, he's this impressive guy. So completely, completely coincidentally, we're at lunch one day. Boswick's nowhere to be seen. He's up being, doing Barry Boswick stuff, being a legend. Me, Alan Ruck, Connie Britton, I think, probably Esposito. Alexander Chaplin, we're all in the in the um, green room and Rocky Horror Picture Show's on. So we're watching Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's so great. Oh, you know, and we're having fun and the people who know all the responses, yeah, I bitch, you know, we're, we're all doing that. Barry Bostwick walks into the room, okay? Now this is all just an accident. Bostwick walks into the room and he goes, oh, and you guys are watching that. And he turns around and walks away. And we all go, no, come in, come in. You know, it's so fun, so much fun. Well, we start watching this thing. And then something unbelievable happens. The time warp number comes up. We get up. And then Barry Bostwick gets up. And we're doing the time warp with Brad. <laughs> and watching Brad on the screen. And at that point, I literally thought the universe was going to like swirl down some kind of a drain and we were going to pop into a whole other universe. And so it was one of the most surreal, crazy moments of my career. And he remembered all the steps, you know, do the step in the right, you know. Yeah, so, that is so funny. I, I love think, the time I think warp. I th <laughs> when you work with show, you work on shows like that, that, that I think it's also a function of being a New York actor, you, you, you work with, uh, you know, the, group, the right. group of people I work with on SVU, you know, it's unbelievable. You, you know, everybody wants to be on these shows. Yeah. So then this was your first episode, Abomination. And I know it was like a long time ago and you've done so much, but like, do you have memories of doing this very first episode? Like, you know, you show up on the scene, you immediately start sassing Novak and then you have like, <laughs> you have a, you kind of, you have a lot of court time in this one, yeah. I feel like. Who was the who was I defending? You were defending the father of the guy who this father saw his son having sex with a man and thought that the man was raping him, so he killed him. Oh, You're George defending Siegel. George Siegel, the legend. Wow, wow, <laughs> that uh, that blows my mind. Um, yeah, I didn't I didn't actually remember that, but I do remember now as you as you're saying it's standing there and uh, it's another one of those moments. Oh my God! It's it's George Siegel. What am I doing here? Who? Yeah, I, I'm a little goofy kid from Chicago who read who grew up reading comic books and 
<laughs> now I'm here, you know, with George Siegel. And he, uh, yeah, he couldn't have been sweeter, couldn't have been funnier and more gracious, you know. And it, it, it was one of those moments where, and I'd, I'd experienced this a little on China Beach at that point. Or no, 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 Spin City. I'm getting my entire career mixed up. Um, of course, we, you know, had big stars. and But he was, he's an actor. For me, there are wonderful movie stars and television stars. And there are really great actors, that, you know, who are also those things. And he was one of those, you know. Yeah. I, I, I to this, I, I, I love watching actors. I, I will forget my own lines sometimes in scenes with with people with Christine Baranski on the show I was recently on. I, I, there's been times where I've just been like, Boatman, it's your line. Oh, um, <laughs> you're so good. <laughs> really. She, and I, I would be so distracted. She's just like in my top. Like I love her so much. I don't know how I could focus. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna <laughs> shift it into a full different thing. I don't know if you know this, but you're in two incest episodes. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. You were in Families oh, you know and Bombshell. Okay. And so one was like twins. It was Rose McGowan and the hot guy from Sons that's, of Anarchy. Oh, and the other one was right. like a young man and Jane Seymour was in it. But right. I was just wondering when you read those episodes, are you like, what? The, like, do you remember reading for the first time some of the more kind of wild episodes of SVU? And yeah, I was just wondering if you read them, if you're ever like, geez. I, did, I am. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a writer as well. I love, I write horror. I write sort of dark science fiction. So I'm a horror guy. I love horror, but I like monsters. I like Frank. I like Dracula. I like vampires, serial killers. My husband's sexual, into all this stuff that you like. Yeah. Sexual sadists. Uh, it's, 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 a, it was a little too real, you know, for me at that time. And I frankly remember thinking, Oh, that show's never going to last. Oh, no way. They're, society's not ready to know that people do that stuff. I mean, and now, of course, here we are in season 1100 or whatever. 24, but, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that's you know? so funny because my husband is like you. He's a horror person. And he, yeah. when he lit, like over watches me see an SVU, he's like, this is more horrific than anything I watch. He's like, how do you watch this? And I'm like, I don't know. How do you watch like a chainsaw guy kill a bunch of people? I don't know. Like, but you know, it's like we have different versions of horror, I guess, all of us. It's definitely true. And in those instances, you know, that kind of horror is ridiculous. It's a guy with a chainsaw or it's a vampire. You know what I mean? There's some part of you that knows. And, And in my case, for instance, zombies. I love any of the Night of the Living Dead stuff, all of that stuff. This show, though, I literally remember even before being on the show, watching the first few episodes and just being like, I can't believe this is going to, they're letting this stuff on the air. I can't believe they're even talking about this subject. Wait, but you touched on something that I actually wanted to talk about, about like the difference between being a guest star and being a regular on a show. Have you had any like guest star horror stories or from that, have you learned how to treat guest stars differently than maybe you would have and kind of whatever you want to talk about that subject? Uh, you know what? It's interesting. Um, there is a strange cast system. As uh, you know, every sh- I've been so fortunate. Every show that I've been a, a regular on, uh, everybody's been great, and it's extended to. Um, it's sort of goodwill, or now they, I guess they would call it sort of paying it forward. But yeah, you wanna you wanna make the guest stars feel at home. Because if you, I mean, all the actors that I respect, for instance, I mean, all the guys I worked with on Spin City, uh, we had all been Richard Kind and, you know, all of us, Alan Ruck and 
we had all been in enough jobs before that to have been in that position to be a guest star. You know what I mean? And so people, literally people like Jennifer Garner, you know, years later would come up to you on the street. And I just know this person is Jennifer Garner, for instance. And she'd say, well, I played the girlfriend of so-and-so in season three. And I'm like, oh my God, of course you did. Wow. You guys were so nice to me. You guys couldn't have been sweeter. I felt you made me feel comfortable. That hearing that always makes me feel great because it's how, yeah, it's how I would want to be treated. And the, the folks on SVU were always, Chris Maloney immediately, uh, because I was a little, I was a little afraid of him before I met him. I was a little afraid of yeah. that guy. <laughs> he looks like, cause he looked in his presentation and on, on the show, he looked like the kind of guy that used to chase me home from school and steal my lunch when I was a kid back in <laughs> Chicago. And I immediately saw him and the muscles and, 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 you know, he just, he, 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 I think he had seen, he liked me on Spin City or maybe he was a China Beach fan. I don't remember, but whatever the first time in that first episode I walked out, he couldn't have been funnier and greater. And Marishka was really, really sweet. So, and everyone that else that I had, so it seems to be a thing. I especially, I, I think especially in New York, because there's just sort of a huge circulating round of people that you kind of work with over yeah. and over again in different, you know? So yeah, it's, I think it's important to make the guests feel great because you're, you're really coming into sort of a home environment, almost, almost a family environment where, you know, everybody's got their little private jokes and bits and stuff and, you yeah. know, you know, so yeah, it's, I've been very fortunate in that way. And this show was absolutely the, the, the same thing. Well, that's good because we hear Maloney can be a little standoffish. So I think maybe he liked you from stuff he'd seen you in. So you got the okay. good treatment. Well, I was going to ask you before because you were talking about like being on these all these different sets for Law & Order and stuff. But like you hadn't really been on, you hadn't been on it for a while. And then now you're back on Original Recipe, the reboot, <laughs> yeah. season 22. How it Does it surreal. feel any different? Because it's been like a little while since you've been um, in a courtroom was- as Dave Seaver. It had been so long that I was surprised they wanted me to come back as the same character. I thought maybe, oh, maybe it's a chance to kind of... <laughs> no, when, when I got there, they had... I think it had been nine years or maybe more uh, well, between my last appearance and this recent Season one. 11 is wet and bombshell. So yeah, 10 years. Oh, my God. They had all my old suits... <laughs> which was hilarious. and They were course, like, hope those... you haven't gained any weight at all. <laughs> uh, uh, well, yeah, unfortunately. Well, some of them, listen, I'm one of those uh, people who my weight goes up and down depending on my mood. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, but no, I couldn't fit anything. So I, I, I did a, a very extensive fitting, uh, which is always encouraging for an actor because you go, oh, okay, maybe they'll have me back. Also, styles um, have changed in ten years. I can't just throw you back in those old oh, suits. Come oh, on, absolutely. <laughs> as great, as great and timeless as this show is, and and the mothership, and yeah, you look at some of those old episodes. You know, Chris Chris Noth in those suits. You're like, oh wow, wow, that uh, <laughs> that lapel is really. And I'm not even a fashion guy, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually can get a little uncomfortable. Like, what is? Wow, those are bad suits. I mean, bad timing wise. Not right. You know, I'm sure they were top quality at the time. For sure, sure, yeah. They do have good costume people. Oh um, my God. So, I mean, they just had you on season, whatever it is, 22 of Law & Order, the reboot. I mean, that that means to me that the SVU door is always open. They could have you back any day. Yeah, 
And you I ready would for love it? to be there. I am, baby. <laughs> I am. I love it. And your character was never mean to the victims because that's why, yeah. like, Barry Boswick, you know, he's on the edge of likability. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Oliver Gates is <laughs> not always that that's kind so- of. And some, like, bully these victims. And you're, go- yeah, like, he's on the he's edge a, of likability. But like how much ability. do you think? Yeah, Oliver Gates, right? Yeah, he's, like yeah. he's not one. Of, he's not the worst. Well, like, he's Buchanan's like a high. Pr- I mean, I think people pay money for for Dave Seaver, but people pay like huge bucks for yeah. Oliver Gates, and so he yeah. has like yeah. he's unscrupulous. You know, yeah. he'll That's, he'll yeah. just go after whoever. Do you watch a lot of stuff you're in? No, not not typically. Um, uh, not that I. I, I'm really critical of myself, but not in a bad way. I just go, oh, you could have done that better. Oh, that worked out pretty well. I mean, so typically I don't watch if anyone's around when people are, you know, because it's, you know, it's a different experience. I mean, I'm watching it for tips of how to do something better. You know what I mean? And they're watching it sort of like, oh, like I was with Barry Bostwick. It's Barry Bostwick. And that's Barry Bostwick at the same time. Yeah. You know? Um. So yeah, I mean, but like I said, I haven't seen a lot of things, and uh, even even my last show, The Good Fight, I just I didn't. It's not that you know what it is. I'm also, um, I I'm obsessed uh, by YouTube. <laughs> YouTube, obs- YouTube blo- blows my. YouTube is mankind's greatest invention. If I'm looking at a screen these days, I'm look, look uh, something on YouTube. I'm learning how to do something. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a UFO person. I'm a yes. I got get all, that you know, UFO footage. That's where it is. Get that beautiful flying saucer footage. So <laughs> no, you know, I just um, today this morning one of my kids. You're a dad. One of my kids locked the door to the bathroom and then shut it. So and I didn't know how to open it. And I YouTubed a solution within two seconds. I had it back open. So it's it is really helpful. It really is. It really is. So I guess I say all that to say I, I don't watch a lot of uh, scripted content. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say something weird. Does anyone ever tell you that you you look like Sarah Steele? I wrote that uh, in one of the questions. I go, I get told I look like Sarah Steele. What do you feel since you work with you, her? Wait, who is you, that? She was the little girl in uh, Spanglish, but she, she was in um, The Good on Fight. On The Good Fight. with Yeah, she's a fantastic okay. actress I'm doing and a, a fantastic casual person. Google. You I'm could a big be fan her... of her because she was Are also you... in an episode of Girls, and uh, oh, you okay. totally so look like this girl. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When 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 you guys first popped on, remember at the beginning of this in this meeting when you, and I just heard your voices when you popped on at first. I thought I was being punked. I was like, Sarah, really? <laughs> but yeah, you guys, you 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 might have a, you're like a secret twin out there. You, you uh, yeah, I would. Lo- yeah, I love her. Uh, that um, when someone yeah. said that because sometimes. When people say you look like or whatever, you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. And when I heard that, I go, <laughs> love that. I'll take that. Thank you very much. I've had, as a, actually from SVU, um, someone came up to me once and said, hey, you're the lawyer on SVU. And I said, one of them, Cuba Gooding Jr., right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, hey, you're the lawyer from SVU. Yeah, I- I'm one of them for sure. Uh, Hootie from Hootie and the Blowfish, right? <laughs> love your music, man. I swear to God. People are wild. They think Hootie was in a SVU. God. Well, hey, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I've had people, I've had people come up to me and, and request a song. Come on, sing just a little, one little, just a snatch of song for my daughter. Dude, I'm not, 
I'm not that's that so dude. funny. I'm not oh my god! <laughs> and and so even that, if you were and they think that they have appeared on SVU, huh? And if it was the guy from Hootie and the Blowfish, like, why would right. he want to sing to you right now? Of course. So silly. Are you are you back in New York still? Do you still do you work out of New York? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I live cool. here. I live in New York. Love awesome. it. Yeah. Guys, I would come back anytime. This has been so much fun. Yeah, no, I feel like we had like 20,000 more questions to ask you, but because you're so prolific. So many stories. No, this was like incredible. Yeah. Anytime. Look, you know, I I love doing, I love, I love the show and I love doing this. So I'm glad. Thank you guys for inviting um, me. Yeah. It's cool to see someone so talented and great just like work for so long and enjoy their work. So thank you so much thank for doing you. that. Maybe it's we'll true. have you I'm back on lucky. with Diane and we'll do like a fireside chat, oh. all of us. Yeah. Oh, that would be, mwah, I would love that. I would love that. I love that woman. So. We will definitely tell, send her your regards. Um, okay. uh, oh yeah, do you want to plug anything coming up? Or I don't know if that movie is like still under wraps, but do you have anything mm, out yeah, right now that people should check out? Not, I... Uh, you know what? I've got a I've got a short story that I just that was just sold to a, and I, I'm trying to sort of plug my writing work a lot these days because people are reading, but they're reading online and sort of yeah. Thing. So I I, I uh, there's an anthology of short stories called Dominion, stories from the African diaspora, and it's science fiction, fantasy, and horror stories from uh, from African American and African and Afro Caribbean actors all over the world and. Um, it's on Amazon. You can find it. it's a great book. It's been nominated for some, you know, literary awards. And I have a I have a short story in there. That oh, I'm very cool! Proud of. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. Also, awesome! Thank you very much, yeah. guys. My cousin Thank writes you. a lot of short shorts and horror shorts and stuff. And like, I know how hard that is. Like, the, getting oh, that yeah. stuff published and getting it I'm, read. I'm, I'm, actually, and- I'm actually on my way to work on one now because I got invited to join another anthology of end of the world stories. So you know, zombies. Ooh. There you go. Armageddon, baby. Oh, yeah. What a guy. He did that from a library. His power went out. I would have canceled. still was like, gotta do this podcast. We both would have canceled. I would have been like, I don't know what to tell you. My power's out. And he was like, I'll be at the public library talking about SVU. What a great guy. But I mean, that's why he's had such an amazing career. I think he shows up. I don't think, you know, I think he shows up. He works hard. And he cares, you know? The opposite of Gerard. Yes. (laughs) He shows up and he shows out. I mean, his sassy confrontations with Casey Novak on her bike. I'll never forget it. Yeah, Um, I just am obsessed with him. I'd like to be invited to Thanksgiving at the Boatman House. I really would. uh, (laughs) I think that's what I'd like to do. Um, Lots of kids running around. Um, That's not why, Um, but I think it would (laughs) be a good time. (laughs) Um, Well, this episode obviously is, it it sucks that it's so old and I feel like a lot of it still holds up today with like people that still, you know. Yeah, what is the rule? Gay funerals and stuff like that. What? What's the rule? Like it takes two generations to change anything or something? Oh, is that it? Yeah. I don't even know. I might have fully made that up, but... It's wild that things are the same. I mean, same with the Nazi episodes in the early seasons. Like we're truly, I know. we've digressed as a society. <laughs> you like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know what happened. We've truly went backwards. It used to be like chill. Like now, people like we, I've, we might have talked about this, but now people get so mad at any black show, and it's like no one would get mad at Fresh Prince. 
Yeah. No one was like, oh, woke culture. Now we have fresh print. Like that wasn't it. Like, yeah. They're used or to family just, matters. Yeah. Like there used to just be shows and everything. And now they're chilled. like, fuck Abbott Elementary or what? Yeah, or blackish. Blackish really oh, yeah. got people, um, it got under people's skin, you know, or insecure. Like, it's like, oh, great, all of that. It's like, it's gone backwards and yeah. people are just so angry at nothing and are so regressive and like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't get it. I really don't. Yeah, I feel so sad for the main character, Ian, in this movie. I mean, in this episode that you just like are struggling with your own identity and then your father has made it his life's work to prove that like you're an abomination, like you're an abomination and that you need to be like fixed, you know? So And that the dad knew, but thank God he got one on his dad. Like, fuck his dad. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, abomination. Why is the abominable snowman? Is that because of abomination or those are just two separate words? I think abominable means, yeah, I don't know why that is in reference to a snowman. Yeah, I don't know. Casey's looking it <laughs> Casey, up. Casey, are you looking uh, it up? But back to Globe's talk and another thing, and the, the it's one of the top podcasts too, but like, I will never watch Yellowstone. Yeah. What? It's one of the top TV shows. You said podcast. Well, yeah, though the podcast of the rewatch is number one. It's the number oh, one really? show in the nation. Yeah, everyone's obsessed. Like the recap show is number one on all the charts. Oh, I had no the idea. Show I thought you is were number just one. Speaking. Sorry, my bad. No, it's I, okay. that's crazy. I didn't know there was a Yellowstone podcast. What the fuck? Yeah, no, there is. There's a Yellowstone universe. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. they're doing prequels and all this stuff. Oh. It's like. Yeah, because I think original Yellowstone takes place like now in Montana. I might be wrong. Am I right, Casey? Do you know? Anyway, I think it just takes place like now in Montana. And then some of the spinoffs are like, okay, this is 20 years earlier with the same family or whatever, you know, like, because people are so into it. What is it? You know, I watched Big Sky for a long time and that took place in Montana, but that was like a fucking nighttime soap. I'm not watching. I will you're never watch it. You're not watching, you're not Wikipedia-ing, you're no. not finding out. There's like one girl I really follow on Instagram and she just got really into it and she was like, oh my, and I'm like, maybe I'll have that. Like, but I don't. It feels so like something my parents would watch and that I would never watch. Yeah, I'm happy for Kevin Costner. I've always been a fan. Our family message <laughs> in a bottle. I remember watching that in the theater. But Have you ever watched the movie with Kevin Costner and Dane Cook called Mr. Brooks? No. It's one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my entire life. I watched it in West Virginia in Jared's parents' basement. And we were both like, this movie is so bad. Because it was when people were like, yeah, Dane Cook's a movie star. And you're like, I don't know. Like, And it does not. No, they really pushed him. He couldn't do movies. Yeah. He got a couple yeah. and it didn't work. Your hair looks cute like that. Oh, thanks. Half I'm up, fucking half down. You half never up, do that. Down. It was my jam when I was like a kid. I would always tell my babysitters, can you put my hair some hair up, some hair down? <laughs> That's cute. My babysitters brushed my hair too. <laughs> so cute. Yeah. Yeah. I brush Rosie's woman. hair every morning and it's a nightmare. Um, well, because but- she has curly hair. Do you, You're not supposed to brush curly hair without it, like, unless it's wet. Yeah, I wet it with like leave-in conditioner. And is it then the I, is it I the bottles it. with an octopus on it? Is it like a no? De- the that's her body kiss. wash. That's her body. That's her. That's her bubble. That's Oski shampoo. But um, no, Rosie, I got special curly hair shampoo. I'm starting her early. I'm like, you get different shampoo from Oscar. Like, you, even though he's got curly hair too, but it's not quite the problem that rehearses yet. So they have kid curls. 
Yeah. And there's not a haircut in sight, by the way. She's not interested in a haircut at all. It's already like down her back. So I don't know if we're getting to butt. I don't know what we're going to do. I watched a viral video of a dad taking his little son who had long hair in for a haircut and then surprised the mom with the haircut. And the mom was like happy to see the kid. But I was like, that's like fucked up. I thought it was fucked up. Why? To cut your kid's hair. Like the first haircut. Oh, without the mom? Yeah. yeah. That is weird. That is really weird. I just, I don't, the internet's ruined everything. Like, I don't believe anything anymore. Like, I watched a horrific video where the dad is on speakerphone talking to a kid, screaming at the kid, and the mom is just videotaping it. And it's the dad being pissed because the mom filed for child support. And the dad's telling the kid, well, then I'm not picking you up anymore. Fuck that. Talk to your mom. If I'm paying child support, you're never going to see me again. Never again. I'm never picking you up. You're not coming here. She wants money. Then that's what you get. And like screaming at this kid. Why the kid is, is that on the internet? Right? The kid is hysterically crying. I mean, oh it's blurred God. his face. And the mom's just taping it. Maybe it's for court she's taping it. Yeah. But like, why are you putting it online? Like, yeah. what? But also that dad has damaged this child forever. I don't, uh, it's just like, even doing nice deeds, like the, or people, not the pranks, like I'm going to college and then it's like people's reactions to gifts, to everything. And it's like, I love sweet things and now I don't trust the authenticity of these videos. Yeah. Oh, well, I'll definitely be taking my children for their first haircut, but I'm going to leave Oscars for a long time. Jared's against having him have long hair and I'm like, <laughs> why is he against it? I don't know. He's like, I don't know if I really want him to like go super long. And I go, we're not cutting his hair until he's at least three. So get on board. <laughs> like, Yeah, it's cute. And Oski has like cur curly hair already. And I just can't wait to see what happens if it turns into like a big puff ball. Like I can't wait to see it. Uh, he might have a Jufro. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. excited. And it's blonde. <laughs> How weird. How weird. Like It's going to look crazy. I'm really um, excited. Okay. We can't keep talking about this. I did get well, really we sad with the child support stuff, but... Well, just, this actually kind of goes into our What Would Sister Pack. Oh, I wow. can go right into it. My big thing, I just want to say, like, yeah. I, I, I don't have kids if you don't want to take care of them. Like, I don't yeah. I don't know how that's such a hard concept for people. Like, just don't do it. I don't. Yeah. It's so easy not to do it. I don't understand why you would ever do that if you didn't want to do it. Right. That kid I'm is like, fucked forever. I mean, what a sad, sad. I would that I would never let that see the light of day on the internet. If I had to get it for court or something, I get that. But like, yeah, that would not see the light of day. Like, you think it's a punishment to pay for your kid to do? Like, what is happening? I don't know. Yeah, get it. Your kid this. to eat. It's not even for your kid to like do activity. It's like for your kid to eat and have clothes. Anyway, this week's the, What Would Sister Peg Do? Yeah, this is the week, our What Would Sister Peg Do? Which you know is our weekly segment where we point you to an article, an organization, maybe another podcast episode, something to help you, um, you know, kind of inform what we talked about on today's episode. And obviously today we saw like horrendous behavior of a parent handling their child coming out and being gay. And so I wanted to point you towards PFLAG, which is, you know, a longstanding, uh, organization. It's the first and largest organization dedicated to supporting, educating, and advocating for LGBTQ plus people and their families. So it's a, uh, I have first heard of PFLAG referenced in 
Reality Bites, the movie. So it's been around for a long time. And their mission is to uh, create a caring, just, and affirming world for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. So if you know someone who has a kid who might be gay or someone whose kid has just come out to them and maybe they need an organization where they need more resources, because I'm sure a lot of people are like, okay, what can I do to help my kid now that they've told me this? PFLAG.org, they have a lot of information. And as always, that will be storied the day the episode comes out wide. And always we save our What Would Sister Peg do's on uh, a highlight on our Instagram called WWSPD. Thank you so much for that, Kara. And Casey just wrote us, Yellowstone is in Wyoming and a little bit Montana. So whatever, they're the same. It's mountain states. Oh, okay, okay. So I wasn't totally crazy. And then abominable is the adjective version of abomination. Wow. But how- So I guess it's abominable because it's so huge that it's like, again, it's not the same size as a normal snowman. You know, it's abominable. (laughs) Oh, abomination means huge. No, abomination means you're like against the norm or you're you're outside of the norm. Oh yeah, so, you know, he lives in a cave, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> abominable is like causing moral revulsion. Yeah. It's like causing disgust. Causing disgust. So it's not necessarily size, but it's like causing fear and unpleasantness. Wow, Casey, first time speaking on the pod. So that's why he's abominable because he causes revulsion because he's so huge with his big snowman claws and everything. Yeah, but in the movie Monsters, Inc., he's cute, you know? (laughs) So I forgot that he's supposed to be a bad guy. Like all of my references, he's a cutie. He's like a cutie trying to chill out. I remember it from like a uh, claymation stop motion Christmas thing. Yeah, But he also wasn't that evil in that. Right? Isn't it like he has a big heart? Yeah, probably. So does the Grinch. You know, everybody in the end. Um, But next week, obviously (laughs) another episode will never stop. Real fake news. Season 18, episode 17. Um, Join us. And, you know, uh, Peacock, Hulu. That's it. I don't know. The Sticks. Internationals. We're obsessed with all of you. Um, We're so lucky we get to do this. And I hope um, your January has been going good and you haven't put too much pressure on yourselves. Yeah, because you know what? We've decided that February is the new January. So if this month sucked, fucking throw it away because February is where we start over. See you next week. That's Messed Up is an Exactly Right production. If you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email at thatsmessedappod at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram at thatsmessedappod and on Twitter at messeduppod. And follow us personally at Kara Clank and at Glitter Cheese. As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to our producer, Casey O'Brien. And to our mixer, John Bradley, and our guest booker, Patrick Kotner. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song and Carly Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thank you to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Dun, dun! dun. <laughs> Follow That's Messed Up and SVU Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase That's Messed Up merch.